Episode 195 of the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. It's a very special episode. It's a Christmas miracle. We'll get to it in a second. Let's it's a do Christmas our- miracle because I'm upright. <laughs> that, is, that is true. Uh, this is why babies cry with ear infections. So you're saying you're a baby? I have wanted to die since Friday. Yeah, I agree. You're a big old baby. It's awful. I get tired of people saying that guys always like get upset when they get hurt or they're sick. I don't. I don't ever cry. You're really not. You kind of like completely shut down when you're sick. You so also like don't you realize that I'm constantly hurting but or ill of something. I just. I think the hardest you know, part life. for me the last four days has literally been just being down and not doing anything. Yeah, who's no one's made my dinner? Wash my dishes. You have done it all. Shit sucks. It's a Christmas miracle. Married you for a reason. I'm I need you to get healthy again. I'm slacking off. It's going to go way back to that guy like 100 episodes ago told me I need to be nicer to my wife. Ugh. Fuck off that guy. Anyways, uh, it's the two of us tonight. Uh, Robert is, speaking of being down sick, Robert is down. Yeah. Uh, hopefully he will get better, but he is resting because he needs to rest. So it is the two of us. Yeah. Want to do our sponsor stuff and then get on to the show? Maybe. Yes. Possibly. I had the wrong notes pulled up on my phone because somebody's kid sent me their Christmas list. Somebody, it's your kid. Your kid. She's not mine today. <laughs> Go ahead. If you're looking for a high quality PVC rack, look no further than Lone Star Reptile Racks. They offer a variety of sizes for all types of snakes, geckos, rats, and more. You can even order something custom. Shipping is available or you can plan to pick up at a Herps Reptile Show near you. Visit ellisreptileracks.com to reach out to Lone Star Reptile Racks and place your order today. Yes. And Little Shop Horse. Little Shop Horse is a small feeder and pet supply business based in San Antonio, and they regularly schedule feeder meetups around San Antonio as well as other neighboring towns and cities. They offer shipping on their feeder insects, ice pods, and are working on starting shipping on their feeder rodents too. All feeders are raised on a nutritional diet that optimizes the health of the reptiles and the amphibians that consume them. Uh, give a shout out to our friend Lewis over at Lil's Shop of Horrors. Get you some feeder insects. If you're in the area, some feeder rodents. They're great. Talk to them. Uh, I pull up. I got my Herps Reptile Show dates pulled up here. So let me go ahead and look. I even prepared. Look, I got a little ticker sent across the bottom of the screen. Bam. Look at you. I know. So fancy. Technology I've always had and never used. Uh, Herps <laughs> Reptile Shows. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, January 13th and 14th. Uh, not going to that because Oklahoma is uh, a different planet and it's too far away from here. Uh, one of our guests no longer lives there. So, uh, Longview, Texas, January 20th and 21st. Then the Big Conroe Show, January 27th, 28th, which is my birthday weekend. Come by, see me, say hi. It may end up just being me that weekend. No, 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 no. I should be there for some of it. Okay. Come by and see us. Uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, February 24th and 25th. Over to the big show in Baton Rouge. I say Baton Rouge. It's not Baton Rouge. It's Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. It's Gonzalez. Anyways, Baton Rouge. March 2nd, March 3rd. Then Bryan College Station, March 9th, March 10th. Then Rosenberg, Texas, which I was confused on where that was, but that's like 20 minutes down the road. I didn't realize that because it's- I've never heard of it. It's the other side of Sugarland. So if anybody knows where Sugarland, Texas is- Oh, that's, okay. Yeah. Rosenberg, Texas is March 16th, March 17th. That's a home show for us. Slidell, Louisiana, April 6th and April 7th. So make it to those shows. They're all next year. So if you haven't gotten your Christmas presents yet- uh. You should not look. What? Joe's going to hand me the paper towels behind you, unless you can reach them. You mean the ones right here? Yep. Can you? God, your arms are long. They're like two feet away. Leave me alone. Did you text your kid from the other room to come get something that was two feet away? I did, because I didn't want to interrupt you. She had to get up. That's good. You know, she slept till three today, so 
Make her do something. It was 4.30. Yeah, well, kids suck. Uh, also, VivTech. If you haven't gotten your LED UVB light bulbs from VivTech yet, what are you waiting for? Go ahead and get those and use code GUMBO22 to save 15% on your VivTech products for either your uh, light bulbs or smart products or anything else that VivTech offers at this point. Go there. Get some bulbs. Buy some bulbs. Okay, so one of our guests was not kidding. This headphone on my ear is fucking murder. Well, yeah, it's... <laughs> I don't know why I thought it wasn't going to be a big deal. It's pretty brutal. Well, leave that off your ear. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Dang bat. Uh, I have a severe ear infection. Uh, for anybody listening, we do have our giveaway for this week. Well, technically, it's last week of December. The, the last week we did. We're a week off. But remember, we're giving away something uh, all we, every week of December. Thanks to our friends over at Colossal Constrictors. The first week, we gave away the Red Science Scraper Set. This week, we're giving away the Red Science Probe Kit. Oh, that's cool. So if you're listening to this live right now, go over to our Facebook page. Tell us what you would like for Christmas. It's on the pin. Come on, there's 14 the of y'all. I think that's like our highest number it's ever. It's not the highest number ever. It's <laughs> overreacting. Uh, but go tell us what you want for Christmas on our post that's pinned at the top of our Facebook page. And I will put you into the giveaway at the end of the episode. Um, there's also a giveaway next week for some reptile betting. And then I think the week after that is for a digital scale for those of you weirdos that weigh out your snakes. Uh, I'm talking to you ball python people. No one else weighs their snakes. We don't know what they weigh. Don't don't ask anybody else that breeds any other snake. We have no idea what it weighs. We also don't know what their food weighs. We don't know how much their shit weighs. None of that stuff. That's just you guys. All right. Let's go ahead and bring in ghost. Guest. Ghost? Guest. Go ahead, man. All right. So we got a lot tonight. So Y'all just don't even know. I'm going to bring them in and then I'm going to let them introduce themselves out past their name because I'm, I'm there's too many letters and stuff past their name. I'm not going to be able to get all that. Uh, Christmas miracle. We're going to make this one wait last. No. We're, oh, no, we're making them wait last. Uh, uh, let's go in. <laughs> he knows. He knows it's him. <laughs> With Dr. Zach Lofman. Uh, uh, let me get all of y'all in, and then y'all can introduce uh, the letters after your name. Uh, and then Dr. Warren Booth, Dr. Ben Morrill, and, and Dr. Dr. Travis Wyman. He's, he's here. Oh, my goodness. How's it going, Travis? Dial <laughs> I think James, I don't think James has been this excited about a podcast that he's had scheduled ever since like the very beginning when he started getting well, I people. Didn't, I didn't know if it was going to happen for one, but so it happens. So Y'all made awesome. his Christmas. It's hilarious. All right. So cool. let's, uh, let's let everybody introduce themselves. Everyone here has been on the show at some point, but we get new people all the time and some people don't listen to the other 5,000 podcasts they've been on. So they'll have their own podcast. So let's go through everybody, and then we'll get into some discussion. So, uh, Zach, you go first. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm Dr. Zach Lofman. Um, I am at West Liberty University. It's a little school in northern West Virginia. Um, I've been on a bunch of podcasts. I have a podcast, Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. And, um, yeah, I, I have grad students do herpetoculture stuff, herpetology. But then the crayfish, it's over here, I guess. Uh <laughs> That's that's what I'm I'm known for, professionally, I guess. So there you go. All right, Warren, you're next. Uh, Warren Booth, uh, well, Doctor Warren Booth, if you want that, um, <laughs> at Virginia Tech. That's a really big school in west of Virginia, not western Virginia. Uh, uh, evolutionary geneticist, evolutionary genomics of how organisms adapt and evolve in urban environments. But I also do a little bit of work on parthenogenesis and sperm storage in reptiles. All right. Dr. Ben, your volume's not on, so it'd be kind of oh, hard to no. hear. Nope, still not. You, still not 
<laughs> Sad day. He puts he puts out videos every week. You would think <laughs> he would have this. That's right, the problem. Was you're like, ah, oh, you should use headphones. It'll help with sound. I've never tried it before. Apparently, it doesn't work, or I don't have a setting. <laughs> so, no headphones for me. All right. Um, yeah, Dr. Ben Morrill, uh, Rare Genetics Inc. Um, working to design uh, genetic tests for for reptiles. Um, trying to get as many tests for as many species and bring bring costs down as i as much as i can when i can and i'm just excited to see how that can help us as keepers and breeders and maybe uh help us learn a little bit more about the animals that we keep awesome and then and then travis Wanley. don't be ugly (laughs) this is this is just the way he is katie you know that i know that he made you the savior in that in that uh, picture. Yeah, so. yeah, you got to be baby Jesus. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> Jesus, good dude. point. Good point. Oh <laughs> Make the atheist baby Jesus. That, that works great. He would show me uh, stuff, and I'd be like, "Too far." He's like, "It's not too far." I'm posting it. I'm like, "Ugh." Uh, Travis Wyman, I work um, as a government contractor for Tell. Through Battelle, I guess. Uh, I am a forensic genomicist, I guess would be the best way to describe me. Most confusing way to describe it? Got it. Okay. And I teach fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and and I try to teach kids. I'm going to be Googling so much shit tonight so that I understand what the hell we're talking about. It's going to be great. Between the well, medications and between tonight. Oh, I God. I don't know about Ben, but at least three of us have some teaching tutoring experience, so we know how to not just act like it's a. You can dumb it down for me, level. Travis. I won't hate you for oh, saying good. that. <laughs> it's gonna work. I, I got to teach genetics when I get back after Christmas break. We do genetics, so I get to teach kids how to do a punnet square and fuck that up over and over again. And I did get to teach. I got to teach uh, intro bio and anat and phys to community college students and then be a TA as a grad student, of course. So see, there you go. All four of us have some yeah. degree of teaching experience, so we can make it We can make it on a level for everybody. <laughs> ben says he got to teach like it was an honor. Come on. Then you haven't taught long enough. It is not an honor. Hey, I like my job. Because <laughs> you don't teach high school senior, or freshmen. Nope, I teach babies. No one here except for me suffers through high school freshmen. I love my babies. No, I don't like any of mine. I told them that. <laughs> I feel like it's, you gotta be truthful with them and tell them. The honesty is key. The, they, they have it in their head that teachers are supposed to like them. I was like, I don't have to like you to teach you. And they keep asking me, why am I here? I'm like, I, do they tell pay my, me. I do tell my 10 year old sometimes that I may love them, but I don't like them at that moment. And then they need <laughs> to fix it. And then I tell them to walk away. And then normally they get it together and then we're fine. I'm still waiting for a freshman to get it together. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I do want to ask. So talking about teaching, I do want to ask since several of y'all, have, we've all taught, uh, and y'all are teaching at college level. Um, how many of y'all deal with freshmen, college freshmen? Just, just <laughs> it's uh, been a long as time. A, as a graduate, <laughs> I deal with all of them, uh, freshmen through <clears throat> second year master student. I don't have PhD students here. So are you finding? So I, don't, you, I don't teach at the moment. Way to go, Warren. Warren's, I won't be teaching until twenty twenty five. So. Damn. Uh, I went from teaching six courses a year to teaching zero courses a year, which is awesome. I was like, and you're not complaining. <laughs> Zach, Zach is jealous. <laughs> Whist in the night. <laughs> 
So, but I'm I'm happy for you, Warren. You know that. Uh, look at that. <laughs> with uh, of course you are. <laughs> with, with freshmen coming in, have you, and you've taught long enough. Have you noticed? Are they less and less prepared for college at this point? Yes. Okay, because unequivocally, I have only been teaching since 2006, uh, and it's funny because when I came in, um, I came in when it was like millennials are the end of the world. <laughs> The, the, the world is going to come to an end and now I'm teaching Gen Z and I'm not going to bash on Gen Z and I'm not going to bash on millennials. I'll just simply say it's a very different mindset of the role of the teacher and what the teacher is supposed to be in your life. And, you know, before when I started teaching, somebody would fail a test. The majority, if so, how do I say this? Cause the majority <laughs> didn't fail the test, but the, the people that were getting like C's, D's, F's and biology, um, that they would kind of they would come to you, and they'd be like, "Okay, what do I need to do to do better?" Yeah. Now they come to you, and it's kind of this: "You're ruining my life. How do we? The, the the onus is on me to make their neurons work, which I don't understand how to how to do that. But I don't want to paint the picture that that's all of them. That's like twenty percent or less, because I also have plenty of freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors that are like kicking ass and taking names." So it's just the response to failure is very different than it mm-hmm. than yeah. it was back in 06. That's the thing that I noticed that's, that's different. I guess also the benefit for teaching college is like they're, they're paying to be there and they had to have grades to get in there at least. Whereas like teaching in high school, like the government's telling them they have to be there and they're forced to be there. And I just I've, I've taught since yeah. 2013 and I've noticed just in that 10 year span, I've noticed a huge change in education. And I just wonder how unprepared these kids are. At the next level. It's, it's funny. Um, the neat thing about West Liberty is, historically speaking, we just simply receive students from eastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, northern West Virginia. I mean, we're like a little liberal arts school. So you, those schools, normally the feeder populations are the local schools. But with our Zeusai major, we're one of six. Like, that's it. And so we've suddenly gotten all these people from across the country, which is funny it's a little bit of culture shock to west liberty to be honest with you like what do we do with these people from california (laughs) they think very differently than the people from wheeling um i bet it's a culture shock for them too it it is too because our university is literally in a cow field like if you look at it on google earth uh we have had cows on campus um, nice that have broken away they're they're literally less than a mile away uh but um but it's been really cool for me as a as an educator because i get to you know, I'm receiving these students from all over the country now and seeing how the different regions respond to like me as an instructor has been really interesting. Um, so, but I don't think you can paint with a broad brush, but I do think there are at the same time general trends that are, are somewhat different. And COVID, COVID didn't do anybody any favors because uh, there was a bit of a role flip. And you guys know this, you teach high school. My wife's a high school teacher. Um, we were told to cater to the students, obviously because of the COVID landscape, but like what little, I don't want to say power, um, but that's probably the right word uh, (laughs) that uh, educators had. It kind of just went out the window because, you know, you're teaching through a computer and you got to do projects and people got to turn things in and you got to be empathetic to everyone. And then, but the students figured out very early on, like, Oh, we can milk this. Um, Yeah. So it was. It, it's just been a really weird world since 2020. We'll just leave it at that. 
Yeah, the group of fourth graders that I have now is the same group of third graders that I had last year. I looped with them. And they didn't have kindergarten or first grade. So there were no social skills. So they were completely feral when they came in as second graders, if they came to school and weren't homeschooled. So a lot of them, their first time being in school was when they had me last year in third grade. And I don't teach kindergarten for a reason. I don't know how to teach those social skills. They're looking at you, turn and look the other way. I don't know what to tell you. Like, no, it's, it was hard. It was very hard. It's funny. That actually reminds me of something. One big difference is this, this wonderful device here has eliminated everybody's ability to communicate with each other and like conflict resolution, things that I don't even think are conflicts. Yeah. Like we've got to figure out how we're all going to get in the van. That leads to drama. And I'm like, what the hell? Just get in the damn van. Like, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, 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 no. Trust me. It, it, it dilutes a little bit at my level. Now, granted, I'm at a liberal arts school. I don't know if it's different at a bigger school. Warren was at a bigger school. So he might be listening to me thinking he's full of crap. No, Warren said, fuck it. I'm not teaching now for the next That's couple right. of years. <laughs> Warren is yeah, there no students. <laughs> Warren said, I have freedom Gone now. to the promised land. But, um, yeah, no, that, that's. That's the thing. And then I became a chair, at a, which means that everybody's problem is my problem. So I get to hear, like, this person's being mean to me, this person's being mean to me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. So it, it's just been very – conflict resolution is not a thing anymore. No. Because we just get on the phone and I'm trying to teach other. it in fourth grade, but it's not working well, out well. You're doing the Lord's work, so keep it up. <laughs> what kills me about having a phone in their pocket is, like, I'll have my kids working mm-hmm. on something on the computer, and they'll look at me and go, how do you spell this? I'm like, you have the internet in front of – just – yeah, think for a second. Go type it in Google. Out. It'll tell you if you're wrong. I'm like, they're like, well, if I don't know how to spell it. How do I figure it out? Try your best. Google will fix that for you. Come on, it's problem solving skills is what I have found. Working on biggest. that too, guys. Working on that too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's my two cents. So, on it. so Warren, what are you doing now that you don't have to be around peons? Uh, just all the research. So I've got. Um, I will teach. Um, I've got a graduate seminar. So, so my department that I'm in is just a graduate department. Um, I will teach, I think January, 2025, I've got to teach a, or got to oversee a graduate seminar. Um, and then teaching is maybe one class every year or two years, depending. But, uh, other than that, it's research. So I've got a, a lab with grad students, postdocs, and, uh, and that's about it really, you know, it's a lot so nice I don't have any lectures. Yeah. Yeah. I taught six courses a year and that was just overwhelming. And I still had state and federal funded research and I still had postdocs and grad students. Um, so it's nice taking away that whole aspect because, you know, at this point in time, normally I would be grading and <laughs> drinking really heavily because of the grading. Mm-hmm. No, now I'm you're just drinking, drinking heavily. Which is great. I've never met a career that drinks as much as teachers. Well, that's because students drive us to it. They do. I have 11 years <laughs> My former institution, and now it's just, you know, it's the downhill slope, you know. <clears throat> so. I mean, I had a whole bottle of wine on Friday, so yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't drink, but I just cuss a lot. That makes me feel better. And then I try not to do it around kids, but that doesn't happen either. It happens. I cuss at them also. <laughs> uh, what, what I find interesting about the four of y'all, and now that Warren moved, is that all of y'all are like within a few hours of each other basically now at this point. Yeah. Which is the weirdest thing that everybody's yeah. like, everybody's like, Virginia, West Virginia, that's where we're all going to move. 
All the doctors are there. So yeah, in fact, I had lunch with Ben like a month ago. Yeah, I saw yeah. Zach what like a month ago at Tinley. Never mm-hmm. met Travis. Fuck off, Travis. Yeah, I don't want to talk so to I, you. I, I've driven. I've driven around that area a lot in the last. Like I was in DC last night picking up my in-laws. I was in Virginia Beach in Norfolk two weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I was in DC doing something else. Um, so I'm I'm in that region a lot. So eventually, we will get to meet up. Yeah, Probably eventually, a, we're going to meet up. I mean, it's, it's an yeah. inevitability. So all I hear right now is Warren's we'll been dodging pro- you. Yeah, well, that's pretty much it. No, I, I can't. I can't avoid that anymore. So, I'm 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 trying really hard to uh, convince our uh, our external speaker committee that we we want to have Warren come up and talk about stuff because I think that his his urban pest stuff would be very interesting just as a field for my people to listen to. Well, you're just going to have him come talk about like boas and stuff. I'm like, I don't think it's going to work that way. That's your job. Just, <laughs> you know, some of them might be interested in the parthenogenesis stuff, but I think a lot of them would be very interested in that urban pest ecology that bed bugs. That's have. all I can think when one is, is bed bugs. I've never had bed bugs. Bed bugs but, and cockroaches. But, Fun yeah. fact. About bed when bugs. About bed bugs. You currently have bed bugs. No, no. <laughs> no. Don't put that out there in the universe. I'm dealing with enough right now with this ear infection. That's not a fun fact. No. <laughs> They're horrible facts. There's bloodletting. No. <laughs> there is a environmentally friendly way to kill them. Bomb. With heat. A bomb. Nuclear bomb. And you have to vacuum seal all the windows, and then you have to pump heat. No? Why are you shaking your head no? Because he knows about bed bugs. Are you telling me that I they, suffered for hours of going in and checking and making sure that cabin didn't catch on fire and it was for naught? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was the longest day of she, summer. So she, yeah, she's a summer. She works at a oh, camp in the summer. You know, they, uh, yeah, it's like a if it's in a single family home, they'll do it room by room. And uh, they'll no- normally heat it up to about 141 degrees, but they'll use special heaters that won't catch on fire, and you don't need to seal anything. The problem is that if the building's too large, um, what you get is a heat gradient. So away from the heat spot, it then gets cooler and cooler and cooler. So if you've got any in wall voids or on the floor or in beds that are away from that heat spot, you'll actually cause them to disperse further out. So you can actually cause them to spread further within <laughs> your house if it's not done properly. And well, if you try to do it on your own and go... It, if you try to do it on your own, you go to like one of the big box stores and get a, a propane heater. You're more likely to burn your house down. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> this was a company. A thing. This company yeah. brought this thing into the summer camp. Um, the campers were convinced that there was an ant infestation, and they that's what you the, lied to them. The told kids them. were all moved to a different location, and I don't know how I drew the short straw, but I hung out on that front porch all day, and every twenty minutes, according to the alarm, I had to go in and make sure that all the probes were still hanging in the right spot upstairs and downstairs, and the thermometer got up to one seventy five in that cabin. Was the company out there to do it for you? The comp- apparently, yes, it yes. was going to cost a whole lot more money for them to have someone stay on site all <laughs> to day. Do it properly. And the guy was like, We're just going to send little kids in there and check, check the temperature. All you got to do is check it. Katie's smart. Oh. She could do it. <laughs> Let Katie walk into the building and just die. Uh, I. It was awful. It was Enjoy awful. your bed bugs. <laughs> I never got them. I, was, I didn't live in that cabin. I also cabin love that you just tell the kids, it was ants instead of yeah. one of you little fuckers is nasty and brought bed bugs. It was rough. <laughs> 
Those ants are, are really easy to control. Bad bugs are a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. That's my only experience with them. It's funny though, because there's a parallel like in a hobby, because I think bed bugs and then I think like when we're snakes, I think mites. Like I feel like it's the same issue. Like both are hard to get rid of. Yeah, L bit, word we're not yeah, allowed mites. to use in this house. Yeah. Oh, mites are gonna become a bigger problem. We're seeing um a lot of resistance evolving to uh, the common insecticides people are using. So people normally use pyrethroids. Yeah are permethrin based and um, they evolve resistance really, really quickly. So I've had samples sent to me and we've identified mutations in sodium channel genes that are associated with um, resistance uh, in snake sucks. mite populations. Oh, and given how stupid no. people are whenever they get new snakes and they don't quarantine, no matter how much you tell them you should quarantine, um, that'll just, it's going to become a major problem. So what I hear is, I heard it here first. I'm never <clears throat> getting my closet back. No, <laughs> snakes go in there. It's just, after about three or four months, then they can finally move out. I'm never the doing bad bugs and the, and the mites will fight it out, so they will. You know, it'll be great. Just, <laughs> what about harmonious yeah. little community? What about the uh, active ingredient in Frontline? Which one is that? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, I know it's different. I, I'm pretty sure it's not. Nix is the Nix one is for head. No, uh, Nix the, it's one of the nicotinamide uh, analogs. We don't you know, use the L word in this house. It makes my head itch. Neonic. We see resistance to neonics as well, as well, but not. I haven't seen it in snake bites, but we snake bites, snake mites, but we see it in um, bed bugs, cockroaches, and stuff like that. There, so they will if, if if they start if that if people start using that a lot, we will see um, resistance evolve in time, and where we will see it are in really big, um, um, so, so large breeder facilities that have got a, or large importers that have got a lot of mites. Yeah. Because if they never control them, then you know what it's like. Well, all of you, um, the more individuals who are reproducing, the more chance there is for a mutation to arise within that population. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're hitting them all with the same insecticide, because of the large population size and likelihood of mutations or mutation rate, you're likely to find individuals resistant and they will then thrive and become the dominant um, genotype in the next generations coming. So we will, we will see neonic resistance probably in the next handful of years as well. I actually have a question about that. Um, how how does the so you spray that on the snake or you wipe it on the snake? What's the mode of action that actually kills the mite? Like, does it basically create a film on the snake that the chelicerae go down through, and then that's it, or is it in the bloodstream? Like, I've never really taken the time to learn how that actually works. I'm sure if so, when it's on the snake, then it should have a residual effect, and it's just it, okay. it'll be soaked through the uh, cuticular. How the the, yeah. the um, cuticular kind of segments, and mm -hmm. that will absorb into the into the um, hemolymph that will then spread around, and it'll, it'll have the same mode. Um, I think I think it acts on the on a nerve channel as well. Okay, cool. um, I just saw Alicia ask about fipronil. Yeah, fipronil. Um, there are resistance. There's a, a mechanisms. The GABA receptor gene ha, um, has a a resistance to dieldrin mutation. The dieldrin and fipronil have the same action mode of action, and we see. Um, fipronil resistance in German cockroach populations. So again, it's because it can be a target site mutation. It's likely to be some one that we see pop up in time, and it just takes time to spread. Any of the target site mutations, the um, you know pyrethroids, permethrin, that kind of thing, um, fipronil, dieldrin, that kind of thing. They you'll see target site mutations arise. And so I guess the challenge is going to be finding. Fun. But it is fun. 
Kind of cool to research it, but the challenge will be finding something strong enough in the future that takes care of them that doesn't also kill your animals. No, no, no. It's going to be that meme with the little girl that like burns her house down, light everything on fire, just burn it all. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, with heat, your snakes won't react well to that either. (laughs) Yeah, so you will kill the mites, or you know, but you won't have any snakes either, but you will have a lot of jerky. Yeah. Snake jerky with dead mites. So, mites peppered in on it. For I, I think one of the I think one of the areas to look at are the um, predatory mites. Yeah. Yes. Um, I've I've never had to use them. I haven't had you know mites in my collection in over a dozen years. But um, I think the predatory mites are the ones that you want to want to look at. I, I've heard really good things about those. I inoculate. I use I naturalistic setups, them. and I inoculate them just preemptively. With the predatory mites, not so much as a mite balancer, but because when you first set up any kind of naturalistic setup, kind of the first thing you get is that flash of fungus flies and stuff, and the predatory mites will help keep those down. Yeah. So wait, so you're actually introducing a mite? Yeah, but they're not snake mites. To prevent yeah, they're mites that eat mites. They're mites that eat other invertebrates. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's that's cool. I just, I don't know. It, it, it makes my skin itch when I just think about putting other mites into a cage. And I know in my head they're not snake mites, but I'm like, yep. After dealing, when we moved to Texas, I had mites for the first time in like, I don't know, like a decade and a half. And getting rid of Easy. those were a nightmare. And so just the idea of any sort of mite again that I'm putting into my collection on purpose scares the ever loving crap out of me. Well, they look totally different than a snake mite. So you at least. Do they? Okay. Yeah, they're like reddish orange. One of the species. Oh, all right, is. I'm gonna start googling. The only issue I've had in, in getting them yeah, is that they um, <laughs> mine have always been dead on arrival. Like I haven't been able to find a supplier oh. uh, because they're a little bit temperamental. But that's also just me being lazy and going to the first one I found. Oh yeah. I mean they're cool looking. Yeah, they, they don't look anything like what the others did though. It's mites go. I know. I know uh, Jason asked, "How long does Frontline or any of that stuff stay on an animal? Not counting a shed, how long does that stuff stay on there? Is it come part of their blood for a while, or what is it?" I don't know. So, what with with most animals, like if you use it on dogs, it's normally about a month, right? Yeah. So, I would imagine it's going to be several weeks. But high temperature and humidity affect that. I'm not sure. As to say, I, I haven't, I haven't had to use it, and um, I don't plan to ever have to use it. And uh, and I don't. I, I, there's no reason to study that in the lab. There's no. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> National Science Foundation or USDA are going to give me much <laughs> no. money to uh, study snake mites. <laughs> yeah, probably uh, not. Uh, to do research in my lab, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. So Zach, how much of that is a? a how often are y'all bringing new animals into your collection at the their zoo sciences and all? <clears throat> um, not that much now. Uh, we were really heavily doing that in um. 16, 17, 18, and we definitely had mite outbreaks. My problem is I think that I have students that have mites that then get them on their little fingers and then come in and work with our collection because we get these, like, we'll get a random pop-up, yeah, and it doesn't make any damn sense. Like, we're talking about animals that have been living in a rack or, in a rack or a stack of PVCs for, like, eight years Five years, nothing, and then oop, here they they show up. So we're hyper vigilant because that's the that's the really interesting thing about this collection at the school is it's kind of a nightmare for quarantining because like we do quarantine, but then I've got I love the air 20, quotes. <laughs> well, I just, I say that because we do it, but then we have 
12 people working with the animals. Um, and then of those 12 people, four of them have snakes. Oh. So, you know what I mean? Um, and then it, when it gets put into the collection for teaching purposes and training, we have a, just over 100 undergrads. And of those, I would say at least 20 of them um, are, are like beyond I have a bearded dragon, like kind of like us. Uh, and, and so in their 1920, they, they try Many of them are excellent. Some of them are just starting and they go to the local Pittsburgh show. And I mean, I would go to that show to get mites. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's one of one of those at times. It's, I just go there to get feeders when I'm when I'm desperate. But, you know, when I hear, oh, I was at the show. And then I'm like, oh, it's Tuesday and you've been in the collection. Here come whatever the hell. So, But what it has done, it has kept me on my toes. I have seen a lot of things go down with this collection that I didn't, I never thought that I would have to interact with. So my, so. my first experience with mites was in college. I, I had a snake mm -hmm. before college. I brought it to college. It did not have mites before that. And then I kept it illegally in my dorm room as most people do. Uh, and then it just kept getting mites and there were no other reptiles in the room other than my snake. And all I can blame is my like 60 year old dorm, which was nasty as hell. Like not my room, just the actual building itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like that means there's just mites living in this dorm. Rept snake mites just, crawling through this dorm at some point apparently and i could not get rid of them finally i had to be like all right all my snakes have to go back to my parents house my parents had to take care of them until i moved out of the dorms again he also could not do his genetics project oh, in his dorm room because they kept molding and dying yeah, every time i opened a fruit fly culture in my dorm room straight mold would grow but if i opened them you in need her you dorm, do that in your dorm yeah. room <laughs> yeah on the weekends like to try they don't, and they don't, they don't react yeah they don't react well to weed yeah, I'd have to go to Katie's dorm to room. do all my genetic stuff with my fruit flies because her the air there wouldn't cause mold to grow. <laughs> I was like, God, how bad is the air in our dorm building that every time I open this, I kill fruit flies? Yeah. And then oh, I just saw, finally at the end of it, I was, I was so tired. I said, Fuck it. I found a friend who had basically the same genetics uh, for his fruit flies. Like, hey, give me your numbers. I switched them a little bit. And I was like, All right, let's turn that in. That works. I, that's why I can't Such do that. Horrible that's, student. That's why the kind I, of student I, we deal with. See, that's it, right there. Hey, but I was, I was smart <laughs> enough to right problem there. solve. Like, I, I problem solve. Problem. All your tables are off by two. It still worked. <laughs> this is why, I like, I, I would love to have something like dart frogs, but that whole thing just like scared me of fruit flies, and I can never do it again. Fucking genetics. Mm. That was I'm a rough class. Word this guy says anymore. <laughs> it's bad yeah. four times. Oh, has it? It's bad once. You know. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Oh, it was horrible. Fruit, fruit, fruit flies and, and mites. Two small things that annoy the crap out of me. Uh, <clears throat> I keep getting questions in for... I know. I'm fixing to pull it up. I think. I've got them all pulled up. We can oh, go through okay. several of the things that people want to talk about. Um, one, <laughs> one was our buddy Paul Byfield said uh, it was genetics related. He wants to know why his ex-wife was so angry all the time. Sorry, Paul. We can't answer that one. That's, uh, no. <laughs> that's all on you, man. It's all hormonal. Some of these uh, were asked and I was like, ooh, I know the answer to these. But then I was like, if I answer them here, I'm going to be told while I'm wrong and then corrected like my students who think they know the answer to shit. Come on, man. Let's do it. Uh, so I'll go with this first one. These are basically a lot of genetics related because y'all are all pretty much genetics related. Uh this is our friend Tracy said this might be a dumb question, but she's been learning a lot about quail genetics. We'll get to reptiles. But uh, with uh, them, they use the location of the gene along with what it does. So because of the location, one bird can't have multiple genes that are located in that one spot. It made me realize I've never heard anyone talk about the gene location with reptiles. Is this something that doesn't matter with them or is it just something that really isn't studied? Which I'm going to let them answer it, but she has. She just doesn't realize she has heard this because. Have you told her this before? No, no, but 
she's been around people that have ball pythons and like this is a it's an allelic thing anyways so i figure i would let y'all not me i am the only ecologist (laughs) here the only the only reason it's got an issue is yeah the only reason it it matters is if it's sex linked so it's on the x or the y chromosome um or if there are two genes that are really close together and there's a likelihood of those two genes being inherited in the same block right so say you had striped and albino that were right beside each other the likelihood is that during crossing over they could get inherited preferentially together Mm. so it'd be very difficult to get an individual who's one or the other other than that it's not a huge deal which chromosome it's on other than a sex link chromosome like what's that one banana or coral glue or yeah i don't know about other sex link genes um you know it's we we spend a lot of time annotating genomes so when we sequence genomes the chromosome scale we spend a lot of time working out where the genes are but we use that for totally different things in in kind of urban evolution and uh, i think i genetics. think that's kind of along what, the lines what of what she was asking moment, but, is yeah, so for, why don't you know, we only, do that with reptiles for me is hitchhiking selection yeah <laughs> there's no because there's no real need you know i don't see it anyway unless you as i say unless there's these two genes or three genes that are in this block and yeah. they're likely to be inherited together, then then at that point it would be hard to disentangle. It would be hard, it would be hard to separate those genes. Are. You know, so I don't know. Um, ben might be able to comment more on that as well. Um, if if what she's talking about, like you're saying, James, if it's something to do with you know being allelic, then yeah, you can have <clears throat> different alleles for the same gene that maybe have different phenotypes. It looks different, kind of like the yellow belly complex in ball pythons. Which would be located in the same place. Lucy. It, so there so are mutations in the same gene. In the, yeah. yeah, mutations in the same gene. They're just in different spots of the same gene. Um, so they're, they're not identical, but they are mutations in the same gene. And that definitely can happen in any animals or plants. I think, it so gets, I think what people need to realize is that is that with with a mutation in a gene, the gene's coding for a protein, right? Yeah. Um, a mutation in that gene can either have no effect, right? So it doesn't do anything. Most of them will be that, or it can have an effect, and it can change an amino acid, and that amino acid can then change the shape that that protein forms, uh, or the variant that that produces. Um, you can have mutations. Let's think of, um, you know, the, I don't know. I, some of these ball python ones, right? Where if you cross them together, you get a a similar variant. Um, Different mutations can have different phenotypes because they either completely stop the production of the protein or they change the production, the protein that was produced and therefore that shape. So it might have a slight effect, um, but not a complete effect. So therefore, um, when people talk about, you know, things being allelic, you know, just remember that they're not stopping the gene working. They're changing the variant. And in some cases it could stop the gene working. But in other ones, it can just change that variant slightly where it binds le- uh, to a lesser degree later on down the chain and has a, a limited effect or a change in effect. But whenever you have two mutated versions coming together, they create a mutant phenotype down the line. Well, and like with, with this, like I said, I think Tracy's heard this stuff before, but because uh, <clears throat> the different different hobbies with birds, reptiles, fish, and all the different things, and then all the fo- most folks w- that are breeding and keeping these in those hobbies are not people that study genetics. And so now they're trying to talk about genetics from a, from a purely standpoint where they've never actually understood genetics prior to this bred to this makes a white one. And like, that's what they got. Um, it gets very confusing. So, even though we're talking so the about other the same thing. thing. In, in, 
yeah, the other thing is that in things like quail genetics, just like in cattle, um, there's a lot of work put in to maximize production. And therefore, they want to know the genome of the individuals. They want to know what's happening whenever different genes are in different forms because they want to select for the individuals with the genomic combinations that result in the most, the utmost production or the highest quality, you know, meat or individual and so on. So it's very different than what, than what snake breeders do. Um, down the line, of course, you know, it could come to that where people think that, you know, variant X is better to have in this thing and variant, variant Y is better to have in that. But at the moment, it's not a, not a huge deal, but it's very different in the, in the meat production or um, agricultural kind of setting. And it's used for a different reason. And hand in hand with that is it's been going on for so long with them that they've got a much bigger baseline because people cared. So they did a lot of sequencing to understand it. It's only, you know, the last couple of years with Ben that people have actually started to care about these things in snakes and stuff. So look, we're still struggling to get people to understand the difference between incomplete and co-dominant. So <laughs> And and uh, always we will. also have the awesome terminology of, of a super this and that. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, that yeah. certainly didn't come from a geneticist. So and the hidden genes. <laughs> yeah, hidden genes. That's even worse. So the the next question, I again, I could answer this one, but I'm gonna let it go to y'all. It kind of ties into that because we we don't use. I find is it this, funny. Is this the 66 yes. percent question? I find a lot of people use terminology and genet in snakes. That they don't fully understand what the the term means, and this one is about het. And I think ninety percent of people that use the word het don't actually even know the long ver like what it's short for. Um, but the question was, where does this sixty six percent het come from, and why do many prominent breeders use the term? Uh, who wants to explain percentage of hets to people? So study your Punnett square. <laughs> you got a single single gene. Just put it in your Punnett square. One in four will be homozygous. Recessive one, one and four will be homozygous mutant. One or two and four will be heterozygous. The problem is that for the three, the one that's homozygous recessive and the two heterozygous, you don't know which ones of those three, if it's non-visual, which of those three are actually heterozygous and which aren't. So therefore, three out of four is sixty-six, essentially sixty-six percent. Exactly. Yeah, Did you follow, it. Katie? Yes. That's a lie. You did not. I was telling Joe to go switch the laundry. Destroy, destroy your... <laughs> it's just, you got three, you got three that are normal looking. Yeah. Theoretically. I can do a pun square. A yeah. If those, oh. out of those three, two of them theoretically should be heterozygous. But remember that your one and four and so on is yeah. all just a, it's, this is what you potentially could get. If you do eight thousand crosses, yeah, it's it's all. My yeah. fondest then you get the memory. To just copy friends and then remove two or four from it. You know that's the problem. My fondest one of my... memory. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to say one of my favorite questions. I taught. I was a TA for a breeding genetics class, and one of my favorite questions that the professor wrote for one of the tests was: We were talking about calculating, you know, the percent chance that something is a carrier for for a you know non-visual trait so kind of like what we're talking about and the question was you know how many breedings you need to do you have to do all this calculating to figure out then he's like and then if you do a, a cross and out of 10 one of them is visual then how do you do it and these students are all worried about doing all these calculations like well if you get one then you know it's a hit <laughs> 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 but they would freak out they're like trying to figure out this math and 
he asks it after he's asked several other ones, you know. But but yeah, if one pops out, then you know it's ahead. Our daughter is in seventh grade now, but when she was in fifth grade, she had a question on a science test that her teacher marked wrong, and she came home just indignant that it was wrong because it should have been correct, and it was a Punnett square question. It was. And so James was like, no, you're right. And we actually sent it to Travis, and Travis was like, no, she Joe's right. She got the question right. So then she got to like awesome. go to her teacher and explain why it should have been. And This was also the year that I think where she corrected her science teacher over and over again Multiple on things times. her science teacher was wrong Multiple about, times which is <laughs> the problem with her having a dad who's a science Yay. teacher. Yeah. Oh, how funny. Yeah. There were so many things. Like, well, She's rocking right. like a 98 in her science class right now, though. I'm pretty proud of her. So, Well, the, the het thing, though, is always... <sighs> She loves Punnett squares. And her response was, well, I know that's what this is because this is how snake genetics work. And I was like, oh, my (laughs) God. (laughs) Teach them right. That's cool. See, and people can work, not have to worry about heads anymore. Just get a hold of Ben if it's ball pythons and he can tell you if it's a head or not. And then it can be 100% or 0% and you're you're good. So Tracy said, thank you all for the answers. It's been fun learning all the differences between the different hobbies. In her head, she keeps comparing the two and thinking of them the same. Um, Birds and reptiles. I mean, it's yeah. exactly the same. I mean, yeah, it's the same across everything. Genetics is genetics is genetics. Yeah. It's just genetics. the terminology, especially in the hobby, is so bastardized that it doesn't even come <laughs> close to the way actual scientists well, talk about this stuff. A lot of the other, you know, as Warren was talking about, you know, the agricultural side of things, and even the people who've picked up like backyard chickens and quails and stuff. So much of the body out there is already in that scientific literature that that they picked it up and went that way. The way that hobby got into it was with people who had zero scientific background, zero interest in a scientific background. So they just kind (laughs) of winged it off of what they remembered from elementary school, which they didn't remember very well. What's. I love so – that's the other thing about social media that I find funny is – and I know all people, especially that some of y'all try to stay out of it. But I, I loved when – I think it was Warren commented about parthenogenesis like a year or two ago and someone tried to ask him what he knew about parthenogenesis. <laughs> thought it was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's – you know, And I will say this about parthenogenesis. All that work that we're building on has come from work on – from agriculture. It's come, work, come from work – on turkeys and chickens from the 1960s and 70s so we're just building upon that their work and in fact this year it was determined that um, facultative parthenogenesis at least in fruit flies is controlled by three different genes Hmm. and they have an additive effect we've seen that that work was done 20 something years ago in quail and it was uh, identified that it was a an autosomal recessive trait 30 50 years ago in domestic turkeys so we're we're building on the agricultural genetics. So you know, it's the, it's the same thing. Yeah, I think people chromosomes to chromosomes, DNA, yeah, DNA. It, all, it all works. It just some of it. I think again gets confused for folks because like you said, the word super. And like I use the word super all the time when I talk like hypo and poas. And I I know it's just a homozygous. It I know what it is myself. But if I say that to somebody, they're gonna yeah, look at me fine. like I'm confused. But I've got no problem with that. But. I got no problem with people using super because it, it defines what it is. It's a homozygous. As long as they understand that that's what it is. For a lot of people think it's different, but they think that a super is different in some shape or form. They, they don't understand that the incomplete dominant is a heterozygote and the yeah, super form is the homozygote. Yeah. Right. But now, now you're seeing some people, which is just becoming ridiculous. Things like leopards in boas. Leopard is an incomplete dominant trait. And you call it het leopard and leopard, which is genetically fine. 
some people now are calling them leopard and super leopards. Which gets confusing because you got to understand that the head, to them, I guess a leopard is the head and they don't understand the difference there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's fine as long as you call it head, whatever. I was going to add to what Warren was saying. I'm all right with people saying super as well, but what I'm not all right with is when they correct me that there is no such thing as a het pastel because it's it's a it's a codom. So <laughs> and you're like so many things wrong in this conversation. Twice there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you sort of look at nice try and move on. Wow. Yeah. No testing for you. <laughs> <laughs> so to, for for Charles to ask about the head thing, just don't buy heads. Just, just go ahead and buy visual everything. It'll be good. Or or send it to Absolutely Ben. Or send heads, it to Ben and Ben. Some heads can be really cool looking. That is true. I, so I, that's the the one thing I like about incomplete dominant jeans uh, and boas. I like jungle and I like hypo. And if you lose hats, you lose normals. Yeah. Well, it, what's if weird about hats, some of the things? I uh, so I, I did a bad thing this past year. I, I bred ball pythons for the first uh, time. I was uh, like, "Hell, you fix it to talk about no. it on this show." What's <laughs> it? Hold on. Where do I where do I cancel out of this year? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you did it too, Warren. You did it too for a while. Yeah, I know, but I realized my the errors in my way. All I, all I wanted to do was produce a banana. That's all I was trying to do was produce a banana. I was like, I have a banana and I have a non-banana. I should get no. Nah, I got three babies, not a single fucking banana. It was all I wanted to do. And now I'm done. I'm like, screw it. I don't. It'll be different. It, it will be get, different because I will not be doing three it. Females? Huh? Did you get three females? I have not actually sexed them. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be really pissed off if they're male and they're not. All three are male and they're not banana. That would piss me off even more. Yeah, that'd be even worse. Uh, be well, it depends on what the banana parent was. Yeah, it was a male. It was a male because I don't have the kind of money for it. Well, that was given to me anyways. But I still don't have the money for a female one. Uh, plus, I don't fucking. Are they not like twenty five dollars now? Or what? Are I don't know what they are. Uh, I know at one point banana female bananas banana. were expensive. I can Google that. A female banana. <laughs> like, I can tell you right now, it costs it costs more than what I would want to spend on a ball python, which is yeah. anything. Anything. <laughs> Chances are good. You got three females, so now you got four. You can breed to that male in a couple of years, three years. There you go, and and still not get bananas. I'll just and then you get. Mm-hmm. $6.25 $6. for banana whenever you do that. So. Well, he's, he's a, so he's a banana pied, and I was like, I could produce a banana pied. And I was like, she's inchy. That's, I like incomplete dominant jeans, so this would be fun. And no, I ended up with like two inches and a normal. This banana head pied is one fifty on Morph Market. Jesus. There's, there, like, you can't just I find remember a Daytona. banana. They're like, it's there banana. Two, years like... ago, but two male bananas at 25000 apiece. Mm-hmm. And they sold before the show started. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yellow bellies. I paid fifteen thousand for my yellow belly Ugh. nineteen years ago. Ugh. I just, mm. Never, I never bred from it. <laughs> <laughs> I paid, I paid nine thousand for a Mojave male once. God, you paid I didn't pay anything for a ball python ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I not not yet, but I, I know your brain's not working on it. Yeah, <laughs> you're just waiting on that next big morph to come in. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, it. but That's and then crazy. what Zach's gonna do is he's gonna threaten. To send people <clears throat> false water cobras if they don't send to ball pythons. <laughs> there you go. That's my currency is false water cobra for snakes. Yeah. Just try, you got a, a chart that says how many false water cobras equal how? The conversion uh, I, chart. I traded a lot of false water cobras this year because I hate selling snakes. I don't like it. And um, I was just like, okay, well, I'd find something I'd want. And I'd be like, so how many false water cobras do you want? And one guy jokingly was like, four. 
And I was like, done. He's like, really? And I was like, yeah, I don't care. Like, Zach's like, I think you coming out of everywhere over you here. You underestimate how many false water cobras I have. Yes. So, yeah, I, I wow. did that for some. I don't even remember what it, I think it was a Honduran milk snake or something. <laughs> but anyway, nice. That's funny. we had. We had someone. We uh, imported the first. We were the first among the first people that imported a zebra jaguar carpet or zebra carpet python. Um, I think this was like oh seven or oh nine, somewhere like that. And uh, we had somebody. What's that? Was that from Paul Harris? Um, he okay, got one. Same, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was from Paul. Yeah, yeah. So it was us and Nick Mutton and one or two other people. We all got them the same year. Um, but anyway, we, uh, we did hatch out some babies when we got babies. I got a, a message asking if I would take 2000 green anoles in trade for one of them. <laughs> That's a lot of green anoles. Yes. <laughs> It ended up being Chris Behoff. If any of you know him, he was just, he, oh, no. he like made a fake account to send us that message. <laughs> I feel like Zach would be like, yeah, I'll take that. That's like, yeah, that. that. I mean, I got a lot of animals here that are eating owls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm the same. I would take those right now. <laughs> I got a lot of Trinidad Trebo. Was any yeah. yeah. I feel like Warren gets that message because he was gets pissed Paul. off when it's a joke. He's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Just to say, Ben, I, I was at Paul's house. Probably in 2001, 2002, whenever he hatched, he hatched his first zebra. Oh, awesome. I saw it was like a tiny baby. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, he has some awesome carpets. Cool animal. Yeah. Still let's, does. let's see. I got some other things here people asked. Uh, this one from DGB Exotics says, uh, are there any genetic diseases that you have seen uh, – <clears throat> That we think we should breed, we should test more for uh, as breeders. We should test for. Um, I know Zach, you probably have to worry about that with people coming in for things outside of the collection. You probably worry about diseases and all. Is there anything that you think we're not testing for enough? I mean, everybody's NIDO, I think, is everything everybody freaks out about, but is there anything else we should worry about? I, I know there's, it's not a genetic disease. Um, yeah. There's some, I'm, this is going to be very vague because I don't know the details exactly. There is definitely. There's some colubrid virus that's kind of raging through some European collections right now that um, uh, when it when it shows up, just wipes everybody out. It's kind of like a it's it's not like a colubrid nido, but it but that's what it's been compared to, because, you know, my understanding is that colubrids can carry a version of serpentivirus, but it's not really overly detrimental. Um, and there was some concern because in Europe. They just banned king snakes because they're, there's a couple islands over there where the king snakes have escaped and they're pretty gnarly invasive. And so people from Europe were ditching their, their lamps. And there was a lot of large imports mm. from Europe you know, back to the United States because most of those things started here, went over there. And there's a little bit of a concern that with that importation, the virus <coughs> may have come over. But I've... I've just heard like whispers of it. Um, not that anybody's keeping it on the down low. I don't want to give that impression, but you know, we'll find out in the next year. <laughs> I can say that. Well, I can't think um, of many genetic diseases we worry about. I mean, there are genetic yeah. disorders that definitely we try not to breed into stuff that oh, yeah. keep getting bred and stuff. The, the one that I'm familiar with that people have brought up multiple times, and I've I've asked for samples, uh, is stargazing and corn snakes. So it sounds like right. that is a genetic <laughs> disease. 
Um, and I would happily you know, try to find out where it is and be able to help people eliminate that from their collections if they think there's a chance. But I have to have, you know, 50 samples that we know are, are stargazers and, you know, people don't usually keep those around. So <laughs> and they try to not make depends them. On whether it's, depends on whether it's a genetic disease or whether it's a virus like IBD and boas, yeah. like one of the ranaviruses. <laughs> because that's what I think about when I start I think IBD and boas. So this is where they yeah. just stare off in space. Very similar. Yeah, they, they stare well, off. One of the symptoms, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I yeah, have the one that I'm most concerned about. I have vague memories that they originally thought that stargazing was associated with one specific morph, and then somebody managed to, for lack of a better term, unlink the two, so that the morph now behaves fine, but you can still get stargazer animals that are like normal and don't carry the morph gene or something, which does have an implication that it is genetically based, but yeah, maybe it just, whoever was doing that had it in their collection and they managed to get the uninfected snakes in the opposite way that everybody else had or something. Yeah. Yeah. That, the one that's... that I'm most worried about coming into collections are um, snake fungal disease, with people still bringing wild caught animals into their collections. Um, we just saw a, a, a grad student giving a presentation a few weeks ago about the range of snakes caught in Virginia that, that exhibit snake, that, oh, that harbor snake fungal disease. And it is crazy. Hmm. Um, so, you know, pit vipers through colubrids, through natrocetans. And once people, you know, and I know, I, I, I see on some of these colubrid groups about people bringing in wild caught animals to augment their bloodlines. Once that comes in, they're in a lot of trouble. And is that something that sits around maybe for a little while? They could actually breed, pass it on, and then it show up in the collections, or is that something that once the animal has it, it's fairly Eventually, obvious? Actually, yeah, we just they don't know enough about it in that stage, gotcha. to my knowledge, um, and uh, they don't have a treatment for it either. Are you aware of any treatments, Zach? No, I don't think there's any. I found it in the field. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. more common. So, I, mean, I, I saw it. In a, I saw it in a Copperhead a couple of months ago in Raleigh. I was down visiting friends, and I saw. A copperhead. My, in fact, my daughter or my son saw this copperhead going in front of the trail, and it was really gnarly. It was screwed up yeah. with snake fungal disease. I think that's what happened. Oh, the, that's right. At, at camp, so that she, it was like last summer. Or two, it was summers two summers ago. ago <laughs> she sends me a picture of a rat snake, and uh, and I, and that's that's my first thought was it was snake fungal. I mean, because it looked fucked up. I was like, you need to kill that and then burn the body. Like get get rid of it. And so she did. She, she disposed of it and, and killed I it. I did not throw up in the process. Um, <laughs> It was a very problem strong... is it's already in the environment. That's, that's yeah. a big issue at that yeah. point. You know, yeah, yeah you're, you're putting the animal out of misery, but it's already in the environment, so it's. Um, but that did, did I remember seeing that picture of the rat snake and thinking that is a that's a nasty looking thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah like, that's what I worry more about, and, and we don't know. So they included uh, Burmese pythons. So they sampled from Florida all the way up to Connecticut. Um, so they had Burmese pythons in the sampling from Florida, and none of those had it. Because one of the fears was, where does this thing come from? One of the questions. And, and a fear was that it came in on imported um, reptiles, one potentially being the Burmese python. But there was no evidence of it in pythons that they caught. So, um, And I think they caught like some ball pythons and stuff like that there, but they find no evidence in any of the pythons that they find in Florida. Um, but they also saw, I think they saw a higher prevalence of it the further north they went yeah. as well. So I'll need to check that. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those yeah, fungus... Fungi where like as you go, as you go south, the heat kind of nukes it a little bit. But when you get to like temperate climates, you're kind of in that magical fungal zone. 
for, for a lot of fun. Yeah, the, magical the, fungal zone. Got, the magical zone. The magical zone. Massive so, amount of genetic variation. You know, genetically, yeah. they're really it's really diverse. So it's not uh, you know it's not beyond the realm of imagination of seeing something a variant that arises that is yep. heat tolerant or cold tolerant that we see in lots of other things. Yeah, uh, and some of it may also be kind of like a we see with white nose syndrome in bats, where it's really hits the bats hard during winter when they're hibernating mm-hmm. snakes that are going, you know, torpid and slowing their metabolism down are becoming more susceptible for, to it. But then, you know, the further South you go, the more active they're able to be, the less likely they're having to slow their metabolism down, the more they're able to battle it off. So that could be, could be accounting for the difference that we're seeing too. That makes sense. I mean, cause the but one you found was in North Alabama. Go, they, yeah. There's less was that warning behavior, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. less of a long-term denning behavior the further south you go because of there's mm-hmm. a reduced winter phase. So you go up north. I, I know that the copperheads that we've worked on in Connecticut, they're, you know, hibernating for six months, you know, seven months of the year. Wow. In communal dens with not just copperheads, but um, timber rattlesnakes and, and colubrids, a bunch of colubrids and so on. So there's a the potential at that point because they're not exactly sitting there, not moving. They're still active and therefore potentially spreading this among individuals. So that's, that's, you know, it's not a genetic disease, but that's, you know, when we talk about what we worry about, that's the one that I'm waiting to see popping up in collections. Yeah. Because I, you know, listening to to your podcast, Zach, you know, I've heard some individuals say that they um, ruminate or hibernate their females in um, collectively in groups um, or their males in groups, you know, and I think that just increases likelihood that something could spread in time. Mm-hmm. That, that makes scares sense. me a little bit. Like I said, I, I, I think most of the genetic diseases we kind of weed out. And if anything, it's a genetic disorder that, you know, like if it thinks like something like, you know, JAGs and stuff like that, that's something that we know exists and people keep breeding. But I think most genetic diseases would probably get weeded out in collections. It's the it's the true viruses or fungal, fungal infections, things that can work their way in and then spread like that are the ones we really worry about. Yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, a lot of these issues, genetic variants that can cause a deleterious effect. You know, we might see very little effect in a single gene, but when you start putting these things together, there's always the potential that, that you're going to have interactions that, that you've got. You know, mutations generally are deleterious in some shape or form. Um, we're, we've got them in somewhat ideal conditions, so it reduces that deleterious effect. But whenever you start adding five or six or seven genes together that all have a deleterious effect, the likelihood is you're going to see something popping up from that there as well. Yeah. And also, they tend to look like crap whenever you got six or seven genes together. Right yeah. now. <laughs> so uh, it looks like crap, which is genetic. And uh, yeah, they, yeah, there you go. So this one is uh, from our friend Jeff Frederick. He asked, uh, he'd like to hear the group's thoughts on the current and future use of genetics and speciation and taxonomy, pros, cons, and missing pieces. Uh, I always, mm. I, taxonomy is always a weird thing because I, I look at things like how they've split up rat snakes and it makes no sense to me. Uh, how they want to lump some things together. And I'm like, I, I get it genetically, but I think mean, if you look at them, they don't look the same. I think um, the best thing I've heard said about taxonomists is that they're not going for clarity. They're going for controversy and conflict. <laughs> Job well, security. <laughs> I'm just telling you that's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, especially those crawfish people. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's like those crawfish people are assholes, all three of us that do this. <laughs> um. I don't know. I could speak to it to a little bit. I, 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 my response when I hear people getting mad about rat sticks and everything, you know, 
just breathe. <laughs> that that's my initial response. Like it's okay. Uh, a species is a hypothesis, <clears throat> so you got to you got to remember that. Um, you don't have to agree with the hypothesis. However, if you disagree with the hypothesis and you want to stand on scientific grounds, you have to have a counter hypothesis, which isn't that guy sucks. Like that is not, I mean, I guess technically it could be a hypothesis, but, um, but I could say like as someone who names crayfish, uh, some of the crayfish I named eight years ago with new methods like RADSEQ and stuff like that. Now we are running those through with a new analysis. We're like, uh Oh, doesn't, doesn't hold. But if you're a good taxonomist, you simply say, okay, that initial hypothesis was wrong. We're going to sink it or we're going to merge it. Or, uh-oh, we got new technology. It was actually two things. But that's like all that the people are really doing um, if they're honest scientists. Uh, so that, that that's my stance on that. I think one of the ones that was kind of most confusing to the general public was was the green tree python thing, right? They uh, they showed the, the the DNA difference between green trees. And it was it – was, I forget what it was. But it was kind of a large number. When you look at the percentage and difference between the two different populations, and then you look at the percentage of difference between like chimpanzees and humans, which was such a small number, it was a weird thing to look at to look at green trees and go, yeah, they're a different species. Yeah, but remember that that whenever they're talking about divergence between chimpanzees and, and humans and so on, they're talking about whole genome differences. Whenever you're looking at a lot of these uh, reptile related, they're looking at a handful of genes, generally a very small number of genes. And they're looking at the percentage variance in those, and you've got a lot of your genome where there's no variation really, yeah. or there's a you've got a bunch of genome where there could be a ton of variation. Um, so it's it's not necessarily comparable. That two percent between humans and, and chimpanzees is a terrible example that people use um, because it's not in the same shape or form that we use for speciation in general. You know, I, I've worked on animals that are. You know, at some mitochondrial genes, they're under 2% divergent, but they are 50 million years separated. Right. Yeah. There's just not, not been a lot of mutation occurring in those genes to result in divergence. You know, it's more significant. And we've done a bunch of work on scrub pythons, and we're going to publish that hopefully this year. This shows some really significant divergence in scrub pythons, which matches the green tree python stuff, which is very clear pattern. There's The thing about the green tree python example is, it's not just genetic differences that, that are significant there. There is phenotypic differences and there is geographic. Um, yes. Um, there's a geographic explanation for that, that divergence. Hmm. Um, and you see that not just in green tree pythons. If you look at any species that exhibits um, a, a comparable range in Papua New Guinea, you'll see the same kind of pattern occurring. What? So scrub pythons, you see somewhat in white, white lip pythons, you'll see it in a whole bunch of lizards, even in birds, because there's a big mountain range in the middle that causes a, a, a geographic barrier to dispersal. Like I know, like and they're timber, part of the, the gene flow. Timber rattlesnakes are one that are interesting because their <clears> range <throat> is so huge that I've heard there's differences in venom between the different uh, areas and all. And uh, but we lump them all in as a timber rattlesnake slash cane breaks as the same thing. But I mean that range is massive from Texas to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely got to be some difference there. You would imagine. Uh, well, there's a there's yeah, a if you go to either range, it's going to be much more yeah. difference than if you go into the middle. Yeah, right. But if but you that's track, track, track that's just isolation by distance. Yeah. Yes. Right. And, and another just on thing, a continuum. what Warren was talking about is a lot of taxonomists now. You know, we we do what's called an integrated species concept, which is basically <laughs> exactly what Warren just talked about. You have to have, for me, I have to have morphology, I have to have geography, I have to have genetics. 
we call it the Holy Trinity here. And if I don't, if I have two that are real strong and one is kind of strong, and then it's a judgment call, and I don't like that. And then I'll dig a little deeper and usually find something that merges it or you know makes it a makes that third example strong when I'm doing the crayfish stuff. Um, the thing that I don't like, uh, the thing that kind of bothers me now with the technology we have today is uh, when you when species of reptiles are described because there's like a scale difference, but there's no genetics um, and there's no – like uh, the rhino rat snakes were recently split. And that's one that I was kind of like – I was actually excited about it at first. And then I read the paper and was like, okay, there's not enough evidence here to convince me because, you know, I think it was like two scales, the L'Oreal scales or something were, were different. Um, but I, I, it, I get a little bit – upset <laughs> that in the herpetological world you know being a so-called splitter it has become like your your blasphemous asshole and in reality you're not really if you're doing your job right you're kind of looking at all if you're looking at multiple lines of evidence and it supports that i don't see a problem so um, are you are you more along the lines of putting things as subspecies or complete splitting species uh, that I goes like back to his idea that species is <laughs> it's a concept, yeah. it's not a concrete. Yeah. Sub subspecies and me don't jive, but that's like a three-hour conversation. I like so. to tell people that the animals don't care. They don't. <laughs> they don't give a shit. Well, I think a lot of it gets confused in the uh, – what everyone learns is their the high school definition of a species. You know, they can't breed. I, yeah. but, then, but then you're like, the but this can breed and this can concept. breed and this can breed and – but, but here's the danger in that. The danger in that is you can take species from Africa and from Australia oh, yeah. and put them together and they will breed and they will produce viable offspring. But then you have to take a step back as a just smart person and be like, that's never going to happen in nature. So, you know, I, I've had so many people um, come to me when I name a new species of crowd or whatever. And they're like, well, did you put them in a bucket and see them breed? I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that seems weird. You know, Crawfish we, porn. We don't do that yet. A, that's weird. And B, that would cost a lot of money genetically to do. And C, I got enough evidence already. Just gotta I don't love have to do that. Someone challenge your paper. Did you make them fuck first? I, uh, yeah. I had to pee first. at a very interesting part of this yeah, conversation. <laughs> There's a the little bit thing. of biological history, though, to that, which I teach, teach my classes. There's um, a guy named Ernst Mayer. And there was a guy named Gaylord Simpson. Gaylord Simpson, best name ever. Uh, he was a, a paleontologist at the American Museum of Natural History. And he kind of fostered this thing called the evolutionary species concept, which talks a lot about how geography matters and phenotype matters. And um, you know, having your interbreeding uniqueness and all that, it matters. But he, because geography, that whole genetic the breeding thing wasn't as important. And Ernst Mayer was like the guy that bothered that whole bit where you, a species is an independent community, blah, blah, blah. And when they were writing the original textbooks for biology back in like the early 1900s, because remember, like evolution just became a thing in 1869-ish. And it took a while for people to be like, yeah, that's a thing. Um, they were adding evolution to textbooks. And uh, Mayer was just so loud about his idea that his idea was the one that kind of got in there and then was the father. Like that was what then everybody was taught, but people don't realize there were competing ideas of what constituted a species all the way back when we first came up with a species. Uh, so 
You know, yeah. so that's just one idea of what a species is, is that whole biological species concept. Thing. His first name was George. Like Gaylord? George. George. Gaylord. George. Simpson. There you go. Well, the people at American Museum that I've talked to <laughs> refer to him as Gaylord. Okay. No, how could you not? <laughs> how could you not? <laughs> Amazing name. <laughs> so the other thing, the other thing I like to tell people when they're talking about this subject is you, you have to realize, like, the scientists that are in these, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, birds or crayfish or snakes or frogs or whatever, like the scientists in that specific group, like they're the ones that have thought the most about the current technology and, you know, what people know about these animals from all kinds of different ways. And we kind of have to trust them that, you know, it could be kind of like that example Zach just gave. It could be someone in that group just tends to be more of a splitter or more of a lumper. And that could really influence, you know, what most people do with that species group, you know, that or that attacks on, um, you know, it could have a big influence. And, you know, 10 years later, maybe there's someone that's the opposite. And so it can kind of change. But the bottom line is, unless you feel like the scientists are doing it so bad in the group that you are so passionate about, you know, if you want to influence that, you've got to learn what they've learned and contribute. And it could be, you know, that you're right. But you, you, we have to trust the people that are in those, you know, working with those specific specific taxa and know the most about the most, you know, current tech technology and, and things going on. We just have to and to really know whether they're actually splitting too much or lumping too much you really have to spend years studying <laughs> so well, the green tree pythons is a great example of that because natush like explicitly said i'm a lumper yeah and i'm splitting these like he looked at the data and he said no this is this is plain as day you know if it if it wasn't he would have just left him lumped because that's that's the kind of taxonomist that he is by his own admission so you, yeah, you have to trust the scientists that, you know, there are some people you don't trust a certain person in Australia. <laughs> you say he's well, one named, person, yeah. But, you Can't know, say it three times or he'll show up. Oh, well, I, he's also not really a taxonomist. He's <laughs> no. He's an artist. He's exactly yeah, what his last name says. Yeah. So according to four <laughs> different... Tree. According to four different websites, one of Gaylord Simpson's most popular quotes was, I don't know where to put whales. I'm sticking them here, but I don't have any reason for it. <laughs> yep. Taxonomist. It was, like, only, okay, it was only, it was only a handful awesome. of years ago that they split killer whales, right? And the multiple yeah. species, mm -hmm. subspecies. And that was based on the, the problem before was that, again, sequencing of a single gene or a couple of genes could say one, could tell you one thing. But whenever they sequence the entire mitogenome, of killer whales they realize mm -hmm. that they fell into very distinct different groups what? so again with the technology changing you know i was telling ben a couple of weeks ago when we when we had lunch we've moved past we just sequence entire genomes now we yep. don't bother with single genes we don't we just sequence entire genomes the, the problem then becomes analyzing the data because you generate so much data that you can't you can't compute this on a standard computer you use supercomputers right um and the other thing that I'll, I'll chime in about that in relation to, to what Travis was saying about the green tree python paper, the Daniel didn't do the genetic work on that. That was done by a group in Florida. Um, there are 
very, very highly skilled in their field. And they didn't just sequence mitochondrial genes. They sequenced hundreds of nuclear genes as well. So two different genomes, essentially, that they used to, uh, to, to, to um, answer that question. And it was um, extremely comprehensive. So well, I imagine that's one of the best studies genetically that I've seen in a long, long time. Well, I imagine single gene studies are tricky because you could look at a single gene in humans and a single gene in crocodiles, and they could be the same, right? I mean, because there's parts yeah, parts of DNA that are the same. You carry the same genes. Yeah, yeah, um, but it's mutation rates and so on. You can I can look at a handful of genes. For example, if we if we took the data from the um, amethystine python work that we're doing, uh, I can take a subset of genes that will tell you very little, and I can tell you I can take a subset of genes that will tell you a lot. But it's the combination of those in, 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 um, that will tell you the, the true story that's going on. So one gene's not enough. The, she said amethystine. I just growing up, it was always amethystine pythons, and then everybody says scrub pythons now, and I'm like, why does nobody call it an amethystine anymore? It's the name I learned. Like every book growing up, that was too long to say. It's too (laughs) complex. Yeah, well, because amethystine is just one species, and you're dealing with a whole bunch of different species. Don't make it confusing, Travis. (laughs) <laughs> and then you'd want to shorten it down to like just amethyst, amethyst python maybe something, you know, like. Amy Amy pythons to give okay. to give a, a really maybe a helpful thing um, for Jeff it was Jeff that asked the taxonomy question right yeah there's a book um, I read a while ago I want to say it's called Naming Nature I don't have it on my bookshelf right now yeah. which is strange it, I told you about it, Ben. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's called Naming Nature, and it discusses taxonomy on a much more approachable level than like the high genes and stuff. It can be very helpful for getting people to understand a bit more how taxonomy can be this sort of wibbly-wobbly thing that, yeah, it's not absolutely concrete. It's just it's how you look at it anyway. Um, one of the analogies in the book that I really liked was you know comparing... Like soda. How do you break down all the different kinds of soda? Are they all brown sodas? Well, but root beer doesn't taste anything like Coca-Cola, doesn't taste anything like Dr. Pepper. So those are three different sodas, but you can't say they're all one soda just because they're brown. Is Mountain Dew and Orange Crush the same because they're both citrus? No, they're very different. You know, how are you going to break those down depends on how you personally do it. I would do it one way. Ben would do it another way. Zach would do it another way. Warren would do it another way. It's where you can come to a consensus overall, looking at the most data that gives you kind of the best breakdown. But again, at the end of the day, it's what I like and I publish and what gets accepted. What was the name of that book? That sounds like Naming on my nature. level. I can read it and understand it. <laughs> Naming nature. Uh, so, all right. This won't be a fun one. Giving y'all's background. And what are your thoughts on common names? Because I'm like, it gets, so the one that, the one that drives me nuts is, uh, for, I always say common names, they're made up anyway. So when people start arguing common names, I'm like, they're made up anyways. You can, as long as we know what we're talking about, we know what we're talking about. It's made up. So, so growing up, it was red tail boas and true red tails. And, and so that's, I own red tail boas. And someone tells me my Colombians aren't red tail. I'm like, they've, they've got red tails. I don't know what the fuck to tell you. <laughs> it's a red tail boa. But I know that I'm not talking about a Suriname. It's not a true red tail. But you'll see people, especially newer in the hobby, fight to the death on that thing and go, you do not have a red tail. I'm like, it's a fuck. We made the names up, guys. Calm down. You know what I'm talking about. 
So uh, where do you sit on on the use of common names, especially like Zach? I'm sure you use common names inside of any special teaching with like the the zoo sciences and all that. Uh, how confusing does that get a lot of the times? Um, I make all my herpetology students learn Latin Ugh. only because if they're going into the zoo field and they want to be a herb keeper, they, yeah. they have to know it because nobody in the zoo field is. They're all herp nerds like us. Like that's why they got that job. My so, fourth grade GT kids are learning Latin right now. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's the thing about Latin. As a person who teaches like zoology, that people are like, "Oh, scary!" And then you just start teaching, and you don't let up. And then the next thing you know, it's not as hard to pick up. Yeah. Um, well, I make all all the organismal kids here take it. Well, they don't. That's not true. I want them to take biomedical terminology. Uh, which is a class that just teaches all the Latin roots and 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 like cephalo means head and platy means flat <clears throat> and rhinos means nose like all that kind of stuff because it, once you learn those roots Latin names really aren't that awful and they're kind of fun like one of the things I plug in false waters again <laughs> Hydrodynasties gigas is the Latin name for falsies and it literally translates to um, giant water monster is what that you know that's pretty cool. So you can nerd out on this stuff. Too, See, I, we read something the other day and our my one of my gifted kids was like, that has a Latin base of this and da-da-da-da and da-da-da-da and da-da-da. And I was like, okay, let's keep going with what we're learning. Like- See, I, I like the idea of learning it that way. I made the mistake when I was in college. I was like, you know what? Because of what I'm going into, I'll take Latin. It was one of the worst classes I ever took because it was taught as conversational Latin. Uh-huh. I was like, what the fuck oh. are we teaching? No, no. one's speaking this. Oh. And I, I think I ended up with like a D in that class. I just could not follow. I'm like, yeah. the whole book That's was based. That's not biomedical terminology. No, the whole, the whole <laughs> textbook was based on like the life of people in um, Pompeii. And you had yeah. like, like, no, this no. is not what I wanted to learn. I wanted the root terms and be able to add it to what I already know. And oh, that was a nightmare. It was not what I expected. But but with the common names, there there are places that try to standardize the common names. Um, I think it's the what's SSAR stand for? The Society for Society. the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles. Yeah. I, I think they put out a, a standardized common name list for herps. Somebody does that. It's the same for um, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, entomological side of America do the same thing. Yeah. We have a committee that will every year will go through and determine what is the common name for X, Y, or Z. But Ultimately, we use Latin names. Um, I will say one thing that's kind of fun about common names. Uh, they weren't considered proper nouns a lot of the time. So that, like if you said rainbow boa, it would be a lowercase r and a lowercase b. Um, or Brazilian rainbow boa, lowercase, well, whatever. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of those committees that Warren mentioned, realizing these things should be proper nouns. And it's kind of fun because like, I think with birds, they're proper nouns. It hasn't hit herps yet. Um, it's hit freshwater fish in North America. All freshwater fish, I think, are proper nouns now. Freshwater mussels are. So when I was writing the book, that was one of the things that um, Mark O'Shea and I kind of like, because I was like, okay, we're going to make these things proper nouns. And technically, they're not proper nouns now, but inevitably, they're probably going to be. So I wanted to get ahead of the curve. and uh, But some people take that stuff really seriously. <laughs> and here's the deal. If you're on if you're on social media and there's somebody complaining yeah. about something that you're calling a true red tail versus a red tail or whatever, Leave. the very simple thing to do is you turn it off yeah. and you walk away <laughs> and you can actually look at your true red tail or red tail boa <laughs> and not give up. 
about you know <laughs> the kid in his basement in his underpants, you know, yeah. telling you what you should know. <laughs> so people get too worked up about this stuff as well. As soon as I see that on these little groups, people try and bring me in on conversations. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. I'm good. My blood pressure does not need that nonsense. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just, that one always amazes me because I'm like, a lot of the stuff, We, if we know what we're talking about, we know what we're ta- Like, if you know what I'm talking about, then we can just move on. We know what we're talking about. I don't know. What, what? is it? The, um, I don't know. The corn snakes. What about, oh, the scientific name? No, no, no. no. Because I still like a laugh at Katata Katata. No, 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 no. Do you really think I know No, you don't, but I just like, name. it's a fun scientific name. Okay, thing. then. No, it's like, is it the Kasachi Corns? Oh, because, yeah. Or... It's Kasachi Corns or uh, whatever the fuck I don't call them. Kastani? Kist- Kist- is that? No, That's no, no. It's Lewinsky. Yeah. That's it. That's Lewinsky. it. Because uh-huh. okay. I always, I called them Kasachi Corns because I live near... Kasachi. So I know that's what I called him. Then everybody else is like, well, it's Lewinsky. I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, it's, you know, it's the same snake. But yeah, I don't know. Common names are weird. Yeah, the, one, the one thing that I, I find funny is listening to people talking about Bolin's pythons. And they're like, <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not calling it Somalia. I'm calling it Morelia. You know, because it's definitely, it behaves much more like a Morelia. And I'm like, well, I will tell you that I've included Bolin's pythons into the genetic studies of amethystines. And they're nowhere near. Morelia, so therefore they're, the Somalia fits. Just because mm-hmm. you don't think it behaves like one in your expert knowledge of having one Bolin's python or maybe seen one once in a zoo, <laughs> doesn't mean that you know that that because you know because you think it is doesn't mean it's right. You know, people have put a lot of effort into studying these things. So. Let's well, like the corn snakes. I know the reason for changing the scientific name there. Look, the, they don't belong in the same group as all the rest of the corn snakes that are all the rest of the rat snakes on the other side of the world. It's just fun. I grew up on a laughing katata katata, and it's fun to say. And it took me a while to figure out how to and say Pantherophis. All the tarantula people use Latin if, names, too. They're fucking weird, though. If the paper you're reading or the species that you're looking at ends in hoser or hoseri or my dog hoseri or whatever, just ignore that. That's not real. And just go back to what it should be. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Good to know. And that is that is one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize when you're in academics, you you come across it. But if you're not, you may not. Just because something gets published in a scientific journal, not all scientific journals are the same, and some of them don't require very much or uh, any <laughs> editing or uh, you know verifying or review. review. <laughs> yeah, you can you can just pay them and they'll print Tell it. Tell us how you feel, guys. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, just because it's in a scientific journal all over the sciences, there are just some seriously shit journals out there that you pay to get your article in, and now you're the authority on this thing because it was published, but it's it's bullshit science that you paid to have promoted. Hey, if they put science in the title of the journal, it's got to be good. Oh, Oh, yeah, sure. You know, there's a whole religion about that, too. It's called Scientology. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I think you've got to pay to be in that as well. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. Oh, man. And scientists in whatever, you know, area it is that you publish that bullshit stuff, no, it's bullshit. But if you're marketing to people that aren't scientists, then they'll just believe it because it's in a scientific journal. But I read it online. It has to be true. You know how many times I've had to teach kids mermaids aren't real? (laughs) Oh, Like, I'd like to say I'm joking, but 
all the time I have to teach them that mermaids aren't real. I mean, real. I teach nine and ten-year-olds, so <laughs> teach high school they kids. believe in a lot of stuff in my class. Yeah, and here's what you, suppose you're doing the same thing with Santa Claus. You're a bastard. <laughs> yeah, I know hey, the kind hey, of guy hey, that hey, you hey, are. This house hey, believes. That is real. That one's real. So mermaid's not, though. Mermaid's never They're brought me a present. manatees. <laughs> oh, uh, let's see. Here's another question. It's, are there species-specific frequencies for morphs spontaneously popping up? As a random example, is albinism more likely to spontaneously develop in a tree boa versus a green tree python? Are there any known environmental or genetic cues that favor occurrences of new mutations? I mean, the random. Mutation, but. yes. Radiation. Um, anything, uh, certain chemicals. So you use insecticides and stuff like that there. They could be genotoxic and they can cause mutations to arise in a higher frequency. Um and it, like ionizing radiation can cause it, but for in terms of our is species A more likely to, to mutate more than B, the answer is no. The reason you'll see it more in ball pythons or corn snakes is because they're simply bred in higher numbers. Yeah, population in, size helps. So if we know that a mutation rate is X when you have an individual, when you have two individuals, well, you've just doubled that because there's two chances of that happening. And if you do that by four, you've just increased it again. So the more individuals you are, the more likely you are of seeing a mutation arise. Because we've got eight and a half billion ball pythons currently on morph market means you're going to see a potential of seeing a lot of mutations. Because you've got a lot of corn snakes, there's a potential to see a lot of mutations, but not a lot of people are breeding emerald tree boas. And therefore, you have to reduce that right the way down. And so what's the likelihood of seeing that mutation arise? And it's just that it reduces... Um, incredibly, are there albino emeralds? Yes, there has been a picture of an albino emerald tree bow before and a picture of an albino Amazon tree bow before and stuff, but, um, but just because there's much fewer individuals, you're, you're less likely to see it. Just It's a numbers game. Well, the trick is yeah. you got to hide it inside of a pregnancy belly and sneak it across state lines and then bring it to America. Hey, I read that book. It didn't end well for them. And then put it on the cover of Reptiles Magazine and pretend that the albino animal didn't. Anyways. One of my favorite ones. Oh. And then breed that to a bunch of other species that are different species. <laughs> yeah. And then yes. tell people that it also arose in a different species from a different locality because you knew exactly what to look for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the weird thing is, I've got two of those in my collection. <laughs> <laughs> so I know this is Amanda ready and not Lee ready because she's talking about cockroaches. And there's no possible way that there's a scientific name for a cockroach that ends in Magnifica. Totally is. Yeah. Oh, yes, what? there is. Yeah. There's tons of animals that actually yeah. that's, oh, that. that's a common scientific name. Because in my cool. mind, I automatically go magnificent, and there's nothing magnificent about cockroaches. You haven't seen all the cockroaches yet. Yeah, I was going to say, you see, haven't see, seen the she's talking about really is pretty. Really good cockroaches. Right, cockroaches. Look mm-hmm. Emerald cockroaches look are, are pretty. I look it up. There's I, even the German cockroaches. They're the shitty ones you don't want. We've got a stock of German cockroaches in, in the university that are all these different, like red-eyed forms. You know, and winged forms, all these different variants. Some of them are really cool. I should start selling. Say, Warren's gonna start selling. Yeah, there you go. Isopod. Uh huh. There you go. Easy to breathe. That would be awesome. Put that in your garbage. You'll have twenty thousand in a day. Okay, that looks like a fancy isopod. Well, it's a type of. I mean, it's a beetle. They're. It's. So there's all look the same. There's the cockroach, and then there's the cockroach wasp. Yeah, the cockroach wasp is not it. They are different. That looks like a fancy isopod. That doesn't look like a cockroach. But that's, I mean, look at a German cockroach and look at a hissing cockroach. They don't look alike. <coughs> no, they're both gross. This is not gross. Hissing cockroaches the, the, are gross. Some of those cockroaches that don't have wings, it's the wings that tend to creep people they out, I think. Yeah. yeah. Depends. But look, I, I keep domino in, I know, and they're awesome. 
Have you seen the one in, when you were in Costa Rica, Warren? That's like it's a big honking bastard, and it, when it's walking through the <laughs> oh, that's cute uh, leaves, you can hear it. It sounds like a flipping lizard or something, and it's a yeah. I think I've like got a couple of pictures on my phone from my What's last trip called? there. Yeah, yeah it, I don't know its name. It's just a really cool just a big ass cockroach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. search big ass. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, big ass cockroach. Let's see. <laughs> Yeah. But there's some cool ones like you know look, whenever we're we're doing night hikes in the rainforests the cockroaches are the ones sitting up on the tree trunk or on the branch mm -hmm. sitting there some of them look really cool well yeah. i've i've learned in, in the recent month that yeah, i uh, want to keep them no. i've learned do not have cardboard <laughs> yeah. boxes in your garage okay but this domino That's... cockroach doesn't look like a cockroach it doesn't look like what my mind thinks of well, maybe you should see more cockroaches do you like spiders they don't bother me but they don't look the right. same do you like do you like um, scorpions? They don't they don't bother me. Cock I don't right. know why cockroaches bother me. <laughs> I don't like them. But a cockroach doesn't bother me. You know? <laughs> do I want to have one in my house? No. Oh, we. But I can still appreciate that they're kind of really. Interesting I used an entire can really of raid species. in my garage. So we 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 cleaned out our garage. See, you're the one that's break. causing the insecticide it resistance. Is. Yes, it is. It was me. No, no. Look, we stepped you're on. You're a falsification of your genetic data we, and your use of raid. We stepped on a lot. You didn't step on a lot. I stepped on a lot. I stepped on some. You stepped on two. I don't see roaches. In the whole day, but don't that's, even. That's when I found out apparently cockroaches eat cardboard, and we no longer have cardboard boxes in our garage. Nope. The way we raise German roaches in my animal room is we use cardboard boxes as well, sheets of cardboard on top of each other because they'll all hide in between them. So, yep. They don't really eat it, but they'll use it for they'll use it for, Found that out for, cover we, uh, for hiding. We had our garage had they weren't the Germans, they were the like the, what the wood roaches, the American roaches, whatever. We had tons of them. And so we started cleaning. I'm like, there's gotta be something they're eating. And we got to the box where they were all at, and it was just full of like DVDs. There was no food, no nothing. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck are they? But they're eating DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> just eating DVD found the use for DVDs. Uh, um, pretty sure they don't know that they need that. a TV to watch the DVDs. They're yeah. just watching DVDs. Just watching the DVDs. We're, we're, we're going into apartment territory now. <laughs> yeah. And if you find any of those American roaches, just send them down to Florida because there's a shop there that does like cockroach eating competitions, right? Oof. Or was that a bunch of years ago? Uh, that was someone uh, died from it. Right? Oh, I remember Steve. that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the the Alicia, to answer Alicia's question. The big ass cockroach Latin is Bolabarus giganteus, and that's the <laughs> that's the one that they were talking about. So now you know. And I actually and also to answer Googled Alicia, giant custard question. Yes, Alicia, you should breed more hog noses. I've been to Alicia's house um, a, couple, a couple of times, maybe once. Breed more hog noses. She's got some really really cool hog nose snakes. Uh, so here's a question that you know it's. As someone who I, I, I don't, obviously do not understand genetics at the level y'all do, but I do understand genetics. So every time I hear somebody talk about um, inbreeding, I my mind goes, I, my mind's always like, it's not that bad. But then you have to explain why it's not that bad. And it's really weird. So, wait, 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 wait. Inbreeding and in what? In general? No. It, it's genetically. With animals? Yeah, if there's nothing that, no negative. Anyways, I'll let them no explain. No people. So, These not, Southerners. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so, so Lee already said the effects of inbreeding in reptiles, uh, because you always hear about you shouldn't line breed or inbreed. I don't have uh, inbreeding in my family tree. Somebody else does. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> not, not me. <laughs> that is, that is someone's family stick. There's no branches. No, I guess I'm in a different tree. That part of the tree is growing in a different yard. Yes, that is not this yes. tree. We, we, we cut that part of the tree off. That is not. 
all of my blood is not related. I <laughs> uh, wow. really hit a point there, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Just need to make everybody clear that it's not me. I I can tell you my favorite saying about inbreeding. I had a student. He's a just this farm kid, you know, the just total total farm kid in this breeding genetics class we were in. He's like, well, what I always figured out is uh, if you're breeding related individuals together, and it turns out good, it's line breeding. If it turns out bad, it's inbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? That's You're right. right. That's, yes, that's, that's pretty much the long and the short of it right there. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah. so I'll let which doctor wants to explain issues or non-issues with inbreeding? So inbreeding, I, I work on organisms that are highly inbred. So like when you work with bad bugs, they're almost within populations, they're almost clonal because there's no literally no genetic variation in the population because they are founded from highly inbred populations. They are introduced into new areas and they inbreed among each other and then you lose variation. Now, there's, inbreeding is not necessarily a bad thing because inbreeding has been shown to also increase the rate of the removal of deleterious mutations. However, inbreeding can also fix deleterious mutations depending on how deleterious that mutation is. So if it's very mildly deleterious, very mildly you know, bad, it can get fixed in a population. And as you accrue those, it can end up being one that's really bad, and that can cause the whole line to go extinct, which is what you see happening in mice breeding populations, for example. You know, uh, people working with house mice, they inbreed and inbreed, and, or sorry, line breed and line breed and line breed. <laughs> and as they accrue mutations, eventually one thing will kick them off, and that will just, they're destroyed. The problem is you can also fix those through line breeding, and then you can outbreed them. And when you outbreed them, you get outbreeding depression, and it can be just as bad. Because you're inter- you're breaking up gene complexes that were good, you're increasing, you're introducing deleterious mutations, and that can be bad. So, um, line breeding and inbreeding are the exact same thing because mm-hmm. you're in, you're breeding individuals that are highly related to each other. And Ben is exactly right. Whenever it's good, it's line breeding, and whenever <laughs> it's bad, it's inbreeding. So, what I will say is that I also find people that want to have their name associated to something line breed. And it's their line, um, which I think is complete nonsense. I work with a lot of hog island boas, and you've got the Shewitt line, and you've got the, you know, uh, the Sears line, and this and that. I don't line breeders. I cross them all because I want to increase. I want to maximize genetic variation among yeah. them. So if people want a Sears line from me, they're not going to get it, right? If they want a genetic, uh, a genetically pure hog island boa, they'll definitely get a really good one. Um, You'll also find there's animals that we can't do anything but line breed or inbreed. A lot of these very rare island boas, the K cockers, the West Nay K, Lagoon K, they started from a very, very small population and there are no more individuals to collect essentially. You can't get them. So there's been a lot of inbreeding going on there, which has caused these deleterious mutations to be excluded or re- removed from those individuals. You can't do anything about that. However, with your ball pythons and your boa constrictors and so on, there's no reason why you cannot outbreed those to different lines to increase genetic diversity. And all of the sequencing, I don't know what, 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 what Ben would say from his stuff, but in all of the sequencing work that we've done on ball pythons, boas, and a handful of other hobby-related snakes, they lack genetic variation in a big way in, in compared, compared to a lot of the wild populations we work with because there's just been a lot of line breeding. Well, and going Do I support with- it? 
I, I have inbred the shit out of a lot of stuff. <laughs> but then I also, but then I, I also outbreed. Once I get what I want, I then outbreed it yeah. to then strengthen those lines. It's just being able to do that. And going along with what you're talking about there, the difference between inbreeding and line breeding. The hobby doesn't really do line breeding per se, because what line breeding <clears throat> means is if you get something deleterious, you purge that out of your collection. And the way we purge things out of the collection is we just sell it to somebody else. So those bad genes stick around in the collection, you know, in agriculture and stuff. When they purge that out of the collection, they go out and they sterilize that animal and it doesn't get to breed anymore. And they will go so far as to not only does that animal not get to breed, but none of its children get to breed and none of its parents breed again. But Travis, that snake costs that person $3,000. You can't expect them just to get rid of it. The same, the same thing happens in the dog world. Um, but the reason it works there for line breeding works is because they keep really strict pedigrees. Yes. Well, dog world, um, I found we, it all, So I worked at PetSmart for a in while. In most cases. Go ahead. Well, that's a different pet smart dogs are a bit different. Well, no, 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 not, not yeah. no. I, I would love things for people that would come in, and someone brought in a um, a white boxer. I'd never seen a white boxer, and it was blind and deaf, and had all these issues. And they just like, yeah, they tend to be born with all these issues. But apparently, uh, a lot of breeders will just kill them all when they're born, and then not tell people that their dog produced white boxers. It's that's- also not true that that there's a whole <laughs> that there's a whole misnomer. Gotcha. White boxers are not more likely to be blind. I had a white boxer for. Um, 13 years and it turned out to be a very healthy animal and talking to other people that had white boxers they had no issues with them just like any other boxer they can have they can be blind or deaf or whatever um, and in fact if you go back and look in the original bloodlines white boxers were actually very prominent in the early years of fixing that that lineage hmm. and it's just what fits in at that point with the kennel club um, but but as, as I was saying um, in the snake world um, not a lot of people keep very good pedigrees you see it every day on Facebook and on Instagram, or whatever. They bought a snake and they're asking questions. You're like, who'd you get it from? And like Steve at Snapticon, you know, and they don't know who that was, right? You know, and they, they don't know what their animal is. So if you can't, if you, if you buy from a breeder, they should be able to tell you at least the last several generations of that animal's lineage. Um, and if you can't get that, then there's a question behind those individuals. Well, I'm, also, I think more people need think- to. If you're if you're buying a, a a reptile for a certain gene, if it's not one of those genes that is like only this one person has bred it and there's no way to get it, <clears throat> buy don't you always have to buy the pair from the same person, right? You can buy one from this person and buy one from that person. It's a better chance of them one. If you buy a pair from somebody, it's most likely a brother and sister from the same clutch or same litter. Uh, I like the idea of of <laughs> diverse uh, uh, um, gene line and all that, but yeah, it's. <coughs> It gets very, like I said, you, people are inbreeding, and because of the way it gets put on TV shows and cartoons with people, they always go, well, if we inbreed, it grows three arms. I'm like, that's not how inbreeding works. That's not how any of this works. It doesn't magically grow another appendage. It's not. So, it's always a hard one to All explain. All of the stuff that we're currently eating, whether it's vegetable or animal, has been inbred <laughs> yeah. to select for traits. The difference is that it's then been outbred um, to then you know, help fix traits and remove those that are deleterious. So I don't recommend it in the human world, but I certainly don't have a problem with it in the animal world. Um, and with snakes, as long as you don't continually inbreed, I, I don't see a problem with it. But then you look at, you look at someone like, I think it was um, Ron Tramper. I think he inbred leopard gecko lines, something like 26 lines or 28 generations, something like that there. 
And what you tend to find is that once you get to with generation six or eight, you start seeing fixation of, um, of mutations and start seeing visual variants arising. So if you look back at Ron's work, I think it was either in the sixth or the eighth generation, you started seeing these high yellows and stripes and stuff like that popping up among his collection because they've been inbred and inbred and inbred and you're fixing gotcha. the homo- these heterozygous into homozygous and you're more yeah. likely to see that variant. One of the for a lot of traits of people line breed that they're breeding for a certain look, you can probably find a similar look in a non-related individual. So again, breed for what you want. If you get that animal, then go find something that is close enough but not related, and breed it into that and and, and strengthen up that that gene pool there. And you can still get to that look you're going for. Just just remember also that sometimes the same phenotype could be controlled by different genes, and yeah. therefore you could actually be causing more problems by selecting for to breed it to something that looks similar. But it's unrelated. So my recommendation to everybody is, you know, the, it's terrible to see what's happened to the ball python world and that a wild caught import ball python is worth essentially zero. And yet those, in my opinion, are some of the most genetically valuable animals on the planet because once you get your really cool animal, you breed it to those, you know, because then you've got a really nice genetic background mm-hmm. to breed into and yeah. then select from. But nobody wants to do that because they don't want ordinary looking ball pythons in their collection. Yeah, for my I, stuff, I always outbreed the wild type animals. After after I've inbred, just to, to fix traits in homozygous forms, I'll outbreed the wild type locality animals or wild type animals that are nice just to 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 be able to strengthen the line. Hmm. So, I'm not advocating inbreeding, but it's used to select traits. But I'm advocating outbreeding once you've selected your traits and you're then able to you know um, um, finesse that lineage. Over time. Yeah, he's not advocating inbreeding, he's advocating line breeding. It's it's much better. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you don't need to do it, then I have don't stuff do it. it. You know? Though yeah. I, I one of the things that drives me crazy in herpetoculture is there's the, the culture of herpetoculture. So like there's some species of snake, like diamond pythons. I, I think I've listened to enough NPR, even though I'm not a Morelia person, to, to know there's the San Diego Zoo line. And then the, is it, I always say Sedgwick, that's not right. Riverbanks, is that it? South Carolina? And isn't it that the ones that got to Riverbanks were born in San Diego and they're all basically the same? (laughs) So we have this culture of, like, they're literally siblings. I think I'm I'm right in this. But they were released to the public from two different locations across the country, but... It doesn't matter because genetically they're all essentially the same. Like I think it's important. Yeah, I saw that with Brettles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think we need to question that. Have all different lines. <laughs> so, yeah, I see just a bunch of them. They're like, ah, they're all pretty much identical. Right. Yeah, I was, I how is it that Stonewash spontaneously yeah. showed up in three mm-hmm. separate lines of Brettles? Well, it's because they're all the same damn line of Brettles. So, yeah. so I think it's important. Well, I know several people weren't happy with, with me releasing those data, but it is what it is. I don't think they were like. But you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right in that, you know, it, but it's just that naming a line and the, the, those zoos might not have specifically named the line. It's the people they got them from. Y- yes. It, you know, they got it from the, the, and then they maintained that, you know. Well, that's, yeah. that's how a lot of morphs are. I mean, a lot, a lot of these morphs come in uh, <clears throat> either from one snake and then spread out to multiple collections. And then people, that's what drove me nuts about ball pythons was the naming of, of, of morphs, right? Uh, banana and coral glow. It's the same fucking thing. 
it it had to have come from similar. So it's the same thing, but because someone on one side of the country named it this and someone on the other side named it this, now we're two different things. That part drives me nuts, along with five million other things about ball pythons and, and the people that breed them. But Yeah, but I, I don't have an issue with that in that if they came from different origins, if they came in from the same animal that then bred and then somebody decided to call theirs coral glue and somebody else called theirs banana, then there's a problem. But if two impo- if they were imported from different areas and they were phenotypically similar, I'm happy to call them different things. Until they're genetically proven to be the same mutation. And what I mean by the same mutation is, I mean the same mutation in the same gene. So the same base pair mutating in the same gene, then I'm happy to call them the same thing. But I think it's very valuable to have different variants within a a mutation. I think it's very um, important to have leopard boas, onyx boas, and Costa Rican black boas because they're likely to be different genetic variations, different genetic mutations within the same gene. Yeah. And I think that's important. So I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think having, as long as it's coming from a wild origin, then I think it's fine. The difference is if it was from that, the breeder, the ball python breeder in Africa, Noah, Noah, if he had that, if he had that original coral glue and he sold a bunch of them and then he said, you know what? I think I can get a bit more money here by calling this one banana, <laughs> but it's from the same parents. Then I think there's a problem there. Well, I mean, that's, that's basically what happened with the, uh, the candy and the toffee. <clears throat> It wasn't from Noah, but both both of those animals came in to Outback as siblings, and one got sold to um, God, I can't remember who, a guy up in Canada, and the other one got sold to somebody here, and they called them different things. They are siblings, you know. I have talked to the guys at Outback; they are this, they are siblings. But there are people out there who insist that candy and toffee are two different things. It's the same thing, and Ben can absolutely confirm that. <laughs> well, Doctor Seidel did that work. Yeah, it's they're identical. So I just I love the uh, the panic you threw through ball python worlds when you started realizing that things are the same thing, even though people have said it for like, like forever that this is the same thing as that. People's brains just melted. Like, it can't be because I paid two thousand dollars more for my version. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's sometimes that people don't want to send sheds for certain projects to develop a new test because they don't want to know for sure if it's different or not. <laughs> that, and see, that just oh, that drives me nuts. That part drives me nuts. Thankfully, there's enough people working with most genes that even if some people don't want it, other people do. So we'll get there eventually. But but yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I'm I'm much more science and animal loving than I am a business person. Yeah. And so a lot of those practices and philosophies were, you know, kind of jaw dropping for me, but I've I've gotten more used to it. But I don't sit and think about something like that from like a business perspective. That that's like one of the last things I would ever think of it from. But there's there's definitely people that do. So one of the last things I want to talk about is the hobby with y'all because Y'all are all kind of at different parts of the hobby. Warren's trying to stay out of it, away from people in general, uh, in his own world. But like, That's just life in general. But for me. <laughs> <laughs> like Ben, in recent in recent history, you've kind of I feel like you've got thrown more into the hobby because of what you do now. Uh, how do you feel where it's at right now, as far as a whole? Like compared, I mean, most of y'all have been, all of y'all have been in the hobby. I want to say a long time, but we've all been in the hobby a long time. Right. And it's definitely changed in the last 20 years. Um, where do you feel now? Is it, is it better? Worse? Are we ruining it? And it's going to fall into the ocean one day and die. 
for me personally, the biggest difference by far was the internet. Like I remember before the internet and I, I love that, you know, a six-year-old can, can study about, you know, how to keep or breed something or what something's doing in the, you know, you can look up natural history stuff about various species and you can read, you know, all kinds of stuff from people that, you know, go and have experiences in the wild or keep things or this or that. Um, you know, I think that's awesome. Um, it, I, uh, to me, I've seen these, like, as far as the economic side of it, I've seen these, you know, boom and bust things multiple times over the last 20 years that, you know, that part of it doesn't bother me. I know there's a lot of people, not, not only reptiles, but other pets, you know, during COVID, they got a cat or got a dog or got some geckos or, you know, you know, a snake or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of new people because of COVID years, um, that, you know, maybe they're producing their first babies right now. And so they're going through their first time seeing an economic downturn. Um, I don't know. I, to me, I guess seeing that those cycles multiple times, it's hard for me to get too worried. Um, I, I think that a lot of people use up a lot of their energy thinking about and worrying about that kind of stuff. If they're animals, if you're, if you're choosing to keep animals that you like and you're interested in and love, um, if, you know, prices go down and you think that it's not worth, you know, hatching out more then just don't pair them and still keep them, keep the few that you have and enjoy them. And if prices come back up, breed them again, you know, I, I don't know. I, I also have never bred to be able to pay my bills. I've never done it as like a full-time job. Um, but you know, I don't see, I see definitely the access to information is exponentially different uh, than when I started. Um, but, you but know, not the people that really there. love it, what's that? So it's not always good that access to information, unfortunately, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, learned, there's, there's a people lot don't know of how to Google properly. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely need to be careful and uh, not just believe everything like we talked about earlier. But, but yeah, I mean, if, if it's something like for me, for my mental well-being, and really it wasn't till COVID that I fully realized, you know, how, how good it is for my mental health to go into the snake room and just hang out in there, see who's doing what and look at, you know, potential future pairings and think about that and look at an animal that's growing up and, you know, remember, you know, just all that kind of stuff is really, you know, for, for whatever reason, for me, that's, that's very healthy and, and uplifting and exciting. Um, and you know, if I, if I don't pair like these last couple of years, cause of the new business, we've been super busy. I had two years ago, I had 70, almost 70 clutches last year. I had 11 and this year I haven't paired anything at all because I just know I'm a lot more busy, but I'm not getting rid of my breeders. I still have them. And, you know, eventually I'll probably start pairing a bunch more again, but, um, it, it just, it, it's going to change over the years and, that's just how it goes. So Zach, yeah, I think if you're keeping okay. it for the right reason, you know, I think it's, if you're keeping it for the right reason, you're keeping it because you're really interested in them. Yeah. And I think where the hobbies really let itself down in the last bunch of years is that people see money attached to animals instead of yeah. animals attached to animals <clears throat> and, uh, and, you know, wanting to learn about their natural history and so on. Like I will say that I think the general understanding of Mendelian genetics has, is exponentially better now than it was 20 years ago in the hobby. Um, and I think that's really, uh, really a good thing. Uh, and it's not necessarily coming from 
their educational background, but it's becoming from their it's coming from their interest in understanding what happens whenever A and B breed and produce, you know, whatever. Um, so I think that's really beneficial. I think, as I say, where the problem arises is whenever somebody just looks at this, thinks I'm going to make a ton of money from buying all these animals. But I think the hobby also self self regulates because three or four or five years down the line, whenever they've they're you know they can't afford to pay the rent anymore because they're having to spend a thousand dollars a month on rodents, and they sell their collection. Well, that, they're not getting back into it in most cases. Um, I think a good thing for the hobby is you're also seeing diversity diversification happening. So people are keeping multiple animals instead of being a monoculture. Yeah. Generally, monoculture is is not great because you lose those little you know, differences that are occurring between species. You know, I keep 130, 140 animals, um, but a bunch of whole different species, you know, pythons, colubras, and boas. And there there, there are little variants that, that occur between them in their behaviors and so on really, uh, are, I find really cool and really exciting. And if I didn't breed them, that's not going to bother me because they're still cool animals to keep. As long as you can afford to keep them and feed them, then it's great. But but Ben's right. You know, the amount of information that we now have available at the tips of our fingers is incredible. Um, and as long as people are doing that because they really like the animals and not because they like the theoretical dollar bill that comes associated with it, then you know, I think the hobby's in a great place. I think the hobby's in a better place now than it ever was. And even as much as I'm not a fan of the whole ball python hobby, the way it because I don't. I look at more more as a pyramid scheme than anything, and less of an actual interest in animals. I will say that that's they've been a good gateway drug for many people to then get into other species. Well, um, so I'm happy to support that as well. And and I've said that about the I, I don't I've said <laughs> that before I don't hate ball pythons as a species, and yeah, I definitely are, they're great animals. Well, I definitely appreciate most of the advancements we have in the technology and stuff we have in the hobby is because that is that part of the hobby exists. Uh, it's just the people part that really starts to bother me. Just seeing a lot of—I hate saying ball python people, but it's certain types of ball python people, and you've all met them. They're—they're they're fucking annoying. Um, but I always tell folks when they get it, if, if they're—you know—if it's a ball python person, the breed just ball python, like try keeping something else because a lot of those people haven't. They haven't kept a different species. They don't know that there may be another species they like even more than the ball python that they're currently breeding. And so I like them trying something else because they start to get into some of the other say odd snakes out there or other reptiles out there so that they don't disappear from the hobby. You know, uh, I, I love rubber boas. I wish more people had rubber boas so that it was easier to find rubber boas when I want to buy a rubber boa. Right. Uh, so yes, I like the diversity. I, I'm starting to see more and more people get, you know, some weird type of Asian rat snake or, you know, the false water cobras or something or something that is different than the four or five main snakes that we sell in the hobby. But, uh, so I wanted to ask Zach the same thing about the hobby, but I want to ask you, do you find because of where the hobby is now, does it help your teaching the zoo science stuff or do you have to correct oh, yeah. a lot of issues? Um, like, do they come into you that's a good going, question. I know how to take care of it, this or it, it, I get the gamut, but the thing that I do get, which is cool. The majority is I'm here to learn. Like I, it, it I, I don't really get a lot of like, I'm not, I'm not making. I don't know what else to say. I don't get the ball python bros. <laughs> That's the ones that. Yeah. But I don't know if they're necessarily coming to college. So you know, but I, I get the nerdy kid is the kind of archetype Zeusai kid, which I was back in the day. But they they come in and you know they want to learn. They 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 like to learn. Learning something that they're into, and like Ben said, first there's so much out there for the this. 
this generation and for any generation that's entering herpetoculture now, you do have to learn, acquire a little bit of a skill set to be able to weed out the bad information, the good information. I spend a lot of time, a lot of time with the undergrads and even grad students just trying to get them to understand, like, if just because you get a Google hit doesn't mean that it's right. you got to <laughs> learn how to vet. Um, and uh, like uh, I in my herpetology and herpetoculture class, um, I make them do these things called taxon reports, which is basically these massive lit reviews of any species they want. They pick their taxa. So if I've got someone that's kept bearded dragon, I had a student this past fall who kept bearded dragons his entire life, like literally was born into a bearded dragon. His father bred bearded dragons, I believe. So beardies were there the whole time. And he just was nerding out on, on the bearded dragons. But even him with that background, I was kind of like, now, now hold on a minute there, bud, because some of these citations, like, you know more than the person that wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> and you should have read that and realized you know more than the, like, don't just cite it. So I, I spend, I think that that's, that's the part of this whole thing that that's been fun for me. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the good breeders, the good herpetoculture peeps, the people that just want to keep snakes and and have fun with it, um, you have to acquire the skill. I think that there's, at times, um, a little bit too much tribalism. Uh, when I started doing podcasts back in the day and everything, I would talk a lot about, like, naturalistic keeping, okay? Because I like to keep snakes in boxes with sticks. Like, that's just the way that I like to do it. Because I like to look at snakes on sticks. Like, that's it. But this was, I think that it was interpreted like, we must keep them with the sticks. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're an asshole. And I was just kind of like, what the hell? And then I started hearing my name being used, like Dr. Loafman says. And I'm like, whoa, first it's Zach. <laughs> I just like snakes on sticks. Like, let's calm down. So um, there's, there's another side to it. Like, the ball python peeps are getting a lot, but there's that other like holier than thou approach to this whole thing that that to me is a little bit off-putting. So in the end, I yeah. think all of us here, we just keep the way we want to keep. Cause we like to keep. Yeah. I, I don't, I like maybe our, our letters behind our name gave us something, but I don't think it really, I didn't get a PhD to keep snakes. <laughs> I got it to actually keep my job. That's why I got it. So, um, you know, but I, I like, I, I like where things are going, but I, I haven't gone to Tinley. I've only been to two Tinleys. Warren was at the Tinley with me this fall. And I, I talked about this on my podcast. I was overwhelmed by the humanity in the room. Like I was, I was so used to growing up in the nineties, early two thousands. Like I was the only kid that did this in my circles. There was no one else. Like yeah. I, I got reptiles magazine in the mail. And for about the week and a half, it took me to read the entire thing twice I was in my reptile nerdy world, and then I was in a void. And now, I have my nerd or my hurt nerds are over there. That's a term of endearment, by the way. And they're having debates and things, and they're talking about what they saw, you know, here and what they read there, and it's all, you know. So it's just what you make of it. Is what I'm trying to say. Like, you can get caught up in all the drama and the bullshit, or you can basically be like, skim the the you know, the goodness off the top and just stay there. But but you determine what you ingest. So yeah, you're going to you do that. It's it. good. Yeah. You get <laughs> out of it what you put into it. Yeah. 
And what, if it's causing those? your blood pressure to increase, you're in it in the wrong right. way. Yes. 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 Step back. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things I think that's really cool is um, being that I am a data-driven human, um, for our podcast, Colubrid and Colubrid Radio, shameful plug, um, <laughs> uh, Eric gave me password information so I can actually go in and look at like the data and the response to the episodes. And one of the things that makes my heart go pitter-patter about it is um, – the episodes that actually are getting the most traction are things like when we had Travis on and talked about kukri snakes, uh, or when we had um, we had somebody on to talk about garter snakes. Uh, we when I did the false water cobra <laughs> episode, like the obscure animals seem to be getting the most traction, which is cool. nice because uh, when we do corn snakes, we get traction, but we don't get you know the same traction as. Oligodon. Well, it's, I like uh, having so, the weird. We had a was it April Linkfield on, and we talked about like five yeah, snakes. Her snakes. She, yeah, yep. hers went through the roof. So I don't know if that's just our listenership because you got to kind of look at this devil's advocate it, and we got the the Kaluber nerds are the ones that are listening to us, or if it's literally like people are starved for something different, and so they they see that and they're like, oh, I'm going to grab onto it. Um, so I, I think that we're we're going to start to see the diversification. I just, I know just in the first year I went to Tinley, and this year. Going to Tinley, I saw more diversity. I don't know, but that's a sample size of one. You yeah. know what I mean? But uh, Back, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing here. Um, <laughs> you mentioned about people being excited about the diversity. One thing I will also say: being involved in a podcast, Boas, 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 on the Morelia Radio <laughs> uh, kind of group. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, at, at Tinley and in other places, people came up to me and said they really liked hearing a podcast that links science and natural yes. history and yeah. keeping. Yeah, it's not they, what they don't want. Are I keep my snake in a, in a Freedom Breeder seventy uh, on X substrate, and I feed it every ten days on X yes. rodent, and you know I cool it too. That's not interesting to them because realistically, I've got twelve different species downstairs from Sanzinia through to whatever, and I keep them all exactly the same. And guess what? They all breed and they all eat. You know, <laughs> yep. so there's not a lot of variation that I can talk about. Um, but people like to hear about the natural history and history yep. and, and their variation and their distribution and so on. So, and, and you know what? That's a good thing because that's taking it away from I'm into this for the dollar bills that I can yeah, make. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I'm into it for understanding more about the species that I'm keeping or that I might want to keep. And also, if you've got a rack, I'm not a, um, a bioactive person. I don't keep anything bioactive. Um, but I will say, even if you've got a rack, you can still make the cage look pretty interesting to an animal in terms of can. Um, adding um, structure to it that allows the animal to get excited about being not just in a, in a, in a box that's, you know, a Freedom Breeder 70 or whatever. My Duns pythons are in F Freedom Breeder 70s or CB70s, whatever they call them. But there's so much branches and, and different substrates and, and high so on that there's, there's a, a really complex um, um, terrain. Uh, Fonarium, terrarium, whatever we want to call it, for them to move around in. They're not just sitting in a in a blank box. So you, because you've got a rack, doesn't mean you can't make it interesting yes. for the animal. And don't come come to me with this nonsense. But they live in burrows in the wild. <laughs> burrows are really interesting things as well. They're they not are. just a box for the whole. Right. They're right. crazy. So you can make. Yeah, you can if put you, a little bit of effort. If you really want to know how burrows can be places. interesting, that that monitor burrow in Australia <laughs> yeah. that they talked about, you know, thirteen. Oh, yeah. 13 feet yep. in a corkscrew spiral with a whole bunch of false entrances and exits. Yep, it's a burrow, but... Well, it's like, know. have you ever seen when they, like pour the molten, when they pour molten metal down an ant hill yeah, and you ants. see... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, really cool. And termite mines, yeah. So don't come to me with the whole they live in burrows because it's not true to start off with. And also, you can make those really interesting in itself. All right, yeah. Travis. But people as, want to know that, and they're finding that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I do. I, I like that there are so many. I say I like that there are a lot of different podcasts. There are several of them that I will never listen to, but I like that there are so many because there's <laughs> there at least one. There's something out there for everybody. Look, our this is the most scientific our podcast has ever been, and will probably ever be. It is very much a uh, we talk about food a lot, and not snakes, but <laughs> but that's one thing. Like like you said. People come up to you. It's, it's still weird to me when someone comes up to me and tells me they'd like to listen to my podcast. I'm like, why? why? Go listen to something <laughs> else. Don't don't listen to me. But uh, but I do like that. There's a lot of information out there, and I try to get some information out there. But but Travis, as our as our uh, ball python person here, uh, <laughs> less I mean, than half of my snakes are ball pythons. <laughs> still got still got, got seventy five ball pythons, right? So. No, yeah. I have <laughs> I have eighteen ball pythons out of sixty animals. That's a lot of ball pythons, man. That's about 18 more than you probably need. I mean, I say that having like six in the other room, which is six more than I definitely need. Uh, Travis, and I, you you also are, are one that likes weird-ass snakes. Um, where, where where do you like the hobby as it is now? Because like I said, it is getting more diverse, so it's got to be easier, easier-ish to find some of the things that you like. Uh, than it would have been maybe maybe not like 20 years ago because odd things were easy to find like 20 25 years ago and then they stopped being easy to find and now i think they're being easier to find now but uh the direction the hobby's going now for you well (laughs) (laughs) i mean i I would disagree with you that it's easier to find the odd things that i like because the odd things that i like are really fucking odd seriously odd things that like I would have to go out into Namibia and collect them myself because nobody's going to collect these things. Um, and I'm not going to Namibia to collect animals. <laughs> um, I do like, I do like seeing the diversity. Um, like, you know, Warren said, when you've got just a monoculture of everything, it's, mm-hmm. it's problematic on so many levels. Um, the diversity, not just in animals, but yeah, the diversity in topics on podcasts and things, it, you see it everywhere in the hobby. I think kind of collectively people are bored of the same thing over and over and over again. It, it got super saturated to basically where every reptile show was just thousands and thousands of four different species or five different species. Yeah. And it got real old seeing that all the time. So it's nice to see, diversification coming out my my concern there at the same time is that people are diversifying to look for the next big major thing which goes back to what Warner was saying like drop money from the damn equation people you know I'm I'm seeing a lot of people who suddenly are trying to sell egg eaters as the next big thing because they're not rodent eaters. And so everybody should be able to take care of these because now you don't have to worry about feeding your snake rodents. And I loved my egg eaters when I had them. They're awesome animals, but they're not for everybody and they shouldn't be pushed out there as the next big thing. They're a thing that I'm sure a lot of people would like, but don't, don't try to commercialize them as the next great big thing. Um, I kind of saw that with false water cobras. You know, 
because they they'll eat anything. People are like, you can get them to eat anything, and they're big and they're fun. I'm like, but that's not a snake for everybody. That's- and and it, it's not, you know. And oh. you know, I I think it's great that they have seen kind of a resurgence <laughs> under Zach, but at the same time, I think it's a terrible thing um, because now you have a lot of people who jump into it. Well, I I, I don't mean it as a slam against you, but like Fucking a Zach, lot of people get all excited about it. I'm the but- asshole, man. <laughs> no, no, you're not an asshole. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I think people, their excitement gets ahead of them. Um, you know, you. <laughs> when I offered you kukri, you offered me false water. False water. And I was yeah. like, no, fuck no. I would offer Not, Warren one. I would yeah. offer Ben because, one. You know, <laughs> guys, we all get them free. We're good. I don't yeah, you do. So we're good here. They're in the mail. I don't want to do like it. What hyperactive colubrid? I just don't. So I think the problem though is is Zach's excitement. Zach's excitement about false water cobras comes out when he talks about it. Oh, and so absolutely. when someone hears somebody talk about their excitement of whatever species, they're like, "I've got to have that species." But and I think that's a great a part thing. Of this, I just think the problem is that's where they stop. Is exciting, and <clears throat> you know, Zach getting people to do research on things is great. I obviously advocate that because that's exactly what <laughs> I made my kid do with the scrub pythons. Says the person that made their kid research scrub pythons. Right. Yeah. You know, and like I do that with everything that I get into. I I go down a rabbit hole. I have I have folders of just papers that I have printed out. hundred percent as reference material. And I go through it and I read all of it and I really get to understand what it is that I'm going to be keeping and why I'm going to be keeping it. And, you know, sometimes I'll go deep on a species and then I'll be like, you know what? These are really cool. I can't keep these because it's it's not it's not something that I can accomplish. It's not something that I can do right. I don't think enough people do that. They just they hit on that excitement. And sure. then it then it becomes a problem. Oh, yeah. So I what I do. But, but there is something I do do. Um which is when I get like, ah, water cobra, I want your water. I do. I send people that article I wrote um, for Reptiles Magazine. And then I will oftentimes send them the animals article that I wrote on natural history, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, I have absolutely, like, I creep on everybody that wants one. And I have flat out said, like, you're not getting one. <laughs> A lot of people. So people need the. Get- uh- do we, yeah, need so the, like, do we need the flower baby version of the um, of the false water cobra? What would it be? What is the flower yes, baby that I you're you're meant to no raise idea. for a week or two before you oh, have carry one? Yes. in high school and you have to carry around a bag of flour, <laughs> egg, yeah, yeah, a boom slang. <laughs> <laughs> that way, if you get bit, you'll bleed out of your eyes and your asshole. So, you, you know, you so it's do. entertaining for everyone so else. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I, I totally, I probably denied that easily 50, 60 people. I, I've sold a lot of these things to people that have ball pythons, actually. Um, the monoculture thing, and they just want a big pet crazy snake. Um, and that's, it's, it's been fun. Uh, a lot of people, actually, what's been interesting is when I do the kings and, and other animals, like, I want a pair. I don't get that. I, I definitely get people asking for pairs. I don't want, you know, but I get a lot of, like, I just want a male because you said the males were smaller. Like I get a lot of that, which at least there's a level of responsibility there. I don't know how thick it is, <laughs> but we're at least considering, you know, so like if that person I'm going to keep a conversation with, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, there is a little bit of, but uh, I, th- I think that passion though is help the I hobby. Think. We talked about things helping the hobby, your passion for false water cobras, 
bleeds out into people wanting false water cobras. We talked about yeah. Eric earlier. Look, Morelia Python Radio is definitely the reason more carpets are sold and kept yeah. in the hobby. Uh, He's and, the reason I got IJs. Yeah. 100%. And look, <laughs> Warren Warren keeps all those weird-ass little Central American boas and stuff like that. And, that, and those have started to take off. I've seen more people wanting dwarf boa species versus everybody when I remember growing up wanted a giant they wanted giant red tails and now the people are wanting some of these island species and the other things so that's one thing I like about especially with podcasting it out there people seeing that these other things exist and and, and getting into them because they're really a lot of these animals are really cool you just don't see enough of them out there to see how cool they are speaking of podcasts my favorite podcast is actually called frog of the week and it is about two minutes long every week Thanks for that. I know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> there are podcasts out there for everybody. It doesn't have to be long and hard to understand. Are you saying this is hard to understand? Sometimes. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> we'll talk about food cool. again at some other point. All right, let's let's, let's wrap this up. Uh, I need I need to do my my giveaway real quick, and then we'll wrap it up. So our giveaway this week for anybody listening, still listening, is uh, we're giving away a probe set again. I need to. If you've never probed an animal and you win this, please. Dear God, don't test it out on your animals. Oh, no. Um, no. We'll talk to whoever wins this, but that is that is one thing. Yeah, it's one of those things that people see on a YouTube video, and they're like, I can do that shit. And I'm like, oh. oh. Mm. Uh, my, my favorite is I went to a vet once, and they probed it the other wrong direction. direction. I've heard about that. Yeah. Oh, so And I've then heard. I asked him, like, yeah, how many nice. males do you get? And he's like, an unusual number of males. <laughs> I was like, that's because you're shoving that probe up into the damn snake's rectum. Like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, and I, I've I seen a bunch of people them. screw up snakes with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen Jeez. them force a little bit too hard, and and yeah, uh, you know, my only job is to hold the snake, and I'm nervous every time. And all I have to do is hold the snake. It's terrifying. I'm going to say the safest way to sex snakes is Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you just you take that shit in an envelope and you send it to Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You can't accidentally sterilize your snake that way. <laughs> this, is, this is why I breed things that I can just palpate with my thumb and go, yep, that's a boy, that's a girl. Yeah. That's, that's why I like saying boas and boas. It's so much yeah. easier with boas. 100% of the time, it's correct. Yeah, I, yeah. that's I've gotten boas in the mail before, and I'm like, uh, that's one I have was supposed to be a female. I got it in. like The day I got it, I felt it. I was like, well, that popped. Fuck. So I didn't have to- <laughs> Don't do it with a tree boa, but definitely a, you know, one yeah. of the chunkier boas, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so to the person that gets this, don't, don't fuck up your snake. And if you fuck up your snake, it's not our fault. Uh, the winner for this one is James Barry. I'll reach out to James Barry. You won. Thanks to our friends over at Colossal Constrictors. You want a probe set. Please don't use it. If you don't know how, if you find a friend, someone can teach you how to use it. Uh, but yes. So that was our giveaway for this week. Is it one of those probe sets that comes with like the really, really large probe as well? You could only ever use on like a titano boa or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I it's think like I've, I've, used, I've yeah. used some of those larger probes just for other things. I've like for stirring things or mixing things up sometimes. Yeah, or just like in your ear. <laughs> I've looked at that and gone, "What the hell are you probing at that point?" Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And then some of them get so small. Yeah. So speaking of uh, real quick, uh, speaking about sexing and having Ben help you out, someone asked something about the green tree python thing and the issue with that. I know I've talked to you before about it on here. Uh, where are you with that one still trying to figure that one out? Um, so uh, for a while I did do a complex test where I was looking at um, some, some markers on the sex chromosome itself. So I would need to have the, if you're like trying to sex a clutch, I would have to have the sire and the paternal grandsire or a known male offspring from the same sire. And then I could, 
do the sequencing and just see whether it got the same male chromosome or if it got the other one, then I knew it was a female. Um, but to get one that works across 50 or 60 different known green tree python samples, I haven't gotten one to work across uh, many where it's like a single shed test. Yeah. Um, I know that's something that Warren has spent some time on too. I don't know how well that yeah, test um, The sex chromosomes of, of Morelia turns out, turn out to be really complex. And that's all I can say right now. So the likelihood of us having a, a shed test um, that's going to be working 100% of the time um, is we're still a little bit further out from that there. Yeah, I think everybody looks sex at... Sex chromosomes are, are just odd, I will say that there. And, and the ones that when we find a marker and we're convinced it's male, and then we, we, we sex a whole bunch of them to confirm, and then you find females coming up as male. Are they ZW? So the sex chromosomes are really are, are really more complex than... And we're working on that with in a, in a collaboration. So not, <laughs> not to develop a test, but to understand the evolution of sex chromosomes. But are, they're, really, they're really funky. Green trees so what are they? I'm hearing is there's going to be a real cool paper at some point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so green trees are they? Are they the, what, the ZW? They're not XY, right? They're ZW, and it's they're XY. They're XY. Okay, I didn't know if they were. Yeah, I know it's... all boas and pythons are XY except for the Madagascan, and also what well, we're not sure about the um, the Candoia. They might be ZW as well, but the Madagascans are all ZW. Well, um, I've got five Candoia. All XY sex chromosomes independently. What was that? I've got five Kandoya I can get you sheds for. Yeah, we need more than that. Well, I, that's all I can give you right now. Yeah. See, you're not helpful, so thanks a lot, Travis. So. <laughs> but, but, and also, we're not, we're, not, we're not really doing any of that work anymore. We're, we're, doing, a, we're doing a chromosome level boa constrictor genome, but um, that's for another project. But we're not really doing parthenogen testing and all that kind of stuff. That's all um, did you have to bring a, your, partly a thing, a thing of the past. Did you have to bring your like cooler of frozen animals with you all the way to Virginia tech. Yeah. They're, they're, on, they're in a negative 80 freezer that I've got in the, uh, in the department. Yeah. Or in my lab. And then we'll find a way of disposing a lot of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause we're just not, you know, with my new position, it's not, it's not, um, as broad as what my last position was. So I don't have the flexibility to work on a lot of the parthenogenesis stuff that, that I was working on. And, and I don't necessarily want to anymore. I think so. I had to turn down a couple of people this week about um, about testing their their parthenogens, you know, because they want a paper from it. And for me, you know, a, a paper describing parthenogenesis in a species of boa or python that it hasn't been found in before is just stamp collecting, and I'm not really into that. Um, you know, I'm into it if it's a new lineage that it has been hasn't been found in, or really understanding the mechanisms. And we've got papers coming out on those, um, but uh, but not just we're, we're I'm past the whole. You know, here's another. You know, here's parthenogenesis in a green tree python, or here's parthenogenesis in a Amazon tree boa. That's just, it's so widespread throughout the snake phylogeny that it's no longer exciting. Just uh, to, to me, at least. Make you a little extra money. Any of those animals you have to get rid of, just sell it to those people that sell like the dead animals in jars at reptile shows. Just start selling those off to people. I've actually contacted some of those people. Yeah. They, they've contacted me because I've got a lot of snakes in my freezer. The only <laughs> thing that I want to keep is I've got, a, I've got half of a Gila monster. And I want to keep that in my freezer because I need to find someone with a beetle colony that can um, yeah. sort that out. Travis, there's your chance to meet Travis. Travis, I've got a beetle colony. There it is. I'll have to uh, bring I'll, in people I'll together. Um, 
I'll decapitate it and I'll work a way of getting that to you because I want the, oh. the Gila Monster skull. is really cool. Wait, wait, he didn't tell you, Travis, it's the yeah. back half. It's just the asshole. You need to clean <laughs> out the asshole. No, the... I'm, yeah. I just want the, yeah, the anus. No, no. no it's, it's the front half. So, <clears throat> and I, oh, that's right. Alicia's got one as well. I'll be in Knoxville. I'm just looking at the chat. He said, fuck you, Travis. Uh, Someone uh, else has one. Alicia Harvin's got one. He says he knows you're closer, but never mind. And I'm more likely to be in Knoxville in the next couple of weeks than I am in, uh, in Travis's. Yeah, I'll send him the back half and I'll send the front half to Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll so, compare quality at the end. If you want people to get a hold of you. Well, Warren doesn't. Zach, if you want people to get a hold of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is the best way? And go ahead and plug your school. And make sure everybody realizes it's not Liberty University. It's, that's a different. It's not Liberty. Oh, God. It is West <laughs> Liberty. Yeah. So. How can I get all of you? What's your podcast and everything? That's weird. Um, uh, to get a hold of me, Facebook and Instagram. Um, Zach Loafman on Facebook. That's the best one. Uh, and then um, podcast is Colubrid and Colubroid Radio uh, on the same network as Warren. So uh, Morelia Python Radio Network. Just need Warren so to put out more episodes. Mm-hmm. We're starting. Uh, we're starting. It's my fault. But he's you've a little been busy. I think you've got. Don't give him excuses. No, he he deserves. I like, it. I I like mean, boas, and I want to hear about the whole boas, lab. Is not a an, a trivial no. thing. Uh, he just moved a freezer full of dead stuff. Uh, <laughs> Warren, uh, just go ahead and just plug your podcast. They don't have to get a hold of you. You don't have to talk to people. No, they can't. It's uh, <laughs> I don't mind people emailing me uh, or contacting me. Um, so the podcast is boas, boas, boas on the Morelia Python Network. Um, we're recording our next episode January 4th, and then we've got a bunch lined up after that. Um, as I said, it was my fault that, that we weren't recording because I was just everything with the move. Um, to get hold of me, also you can get it through my Instagram, which is Boa Booth, um, and through Facebook is Warren Booth. Um, don't send me a friend request on Facebook if I don't know you because I'm not going to friend you, but I will happily answer your questions uh, in most cases. Um, other than that, um, I think that's it. I, just, I love that you have the best business name for someone to do reptile shows who doesn't do reptile shows. Wow. <laughs> All right. I've thought about it. I, I think I will be soon just because of the diversity of animals that we now have, um, you know, from the Sanzinia to the Emeralds to the Amazons to the, all the different boas. And then I just got into rainbow boas in a big way. And then we've got a bunch of Antaresia morphs and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So I think, you know, I think, and then, I've, oh shit, I've got a bunch of carpets and a bunch of warmers <laughs> and, um, and some kinks. Some Just starting to remember I, things. I think and... in time I will. It's, the difference is that whenever I go to reptile shows, which is very rare, I like to go and have a beer and walk around and talk to friends. Yeah. The idea of standing behind a booth for, <laughs> you know, whatever number of hours per day is sounds miserable to me. Um, you so, need somebody, but I, I think I will. You just feel like somebody a, to come run your table for you. No, I just feel like it would be Warren telling people, "No, you can't have this. Keep going. <laughs> no, I'll happily sell it to you. Keep walking. I'll sell you anything you want. <laughs> show me the money. That's I'm in it for the money. I'm in it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody's learned from this show is that Warren is just in it for. I've the been money. doing it for thirty years, just for the money for thirty years. Yeah. It's just, worked really well. Oh my god. <laughs> Boa Booth is just a great name for a. And he's never had them. Travis, uh, if anybody we'll wants to make me a free logo, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, Jeff, if you're out there, you can hear that. Who's made all our logo? Feel free to do it. Uh, free, by the way. Free. Uh, we'll skip Travis, come back to him. Ben, 
go ahead. Tell people how they can get a hold of you and send you sheds full of shit and urine and nasty stuff and think you <laughs> do miracles. Keep it clean, people. Keep it clean. We don't need that shit. Um, so Rare Genetics Inc., uh, we're pretty easy to find on Facebook or Instagram. We also have a weekly show, Reptile Genetics Weekly, that usually comes out on Tuesday nights. But since I'm setting up a big run for shed testing today and I was coming on this show, um, we'll have our episode this week coming out tomorrow, but we're so we're easy to find on YouTube too. I appreciate your show because it allowed me to pull a lot of uh, pictures of Travis's face for all the stuff that I made this week. It was great. <laughs> are any of these podcasts kid friendly? Ours is. There's yes. are. Ours. It's just, yeah, just ours it's, it's just, just our you. podcast. It's just you. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be kid friendly for a majority of the week. This is yeah, not what I choose to be. All the G Club kids want to listen to podcasts. And I guess it I sounds like some, ours. I guess it sounds like somebody needs to make their own damn podcast. I don't have time for that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Travis, go ahead and tell people how you don't ride motorcycles for a living. Yes, I don't ride motorcycles for a living. <laughs> don't 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 go on Facebook and find the motocross racer. Um, should be pretty obvious. It's me. I've got a snake in my profile picture. Uh, also, is it the black Instagram. shirt picture? Yes, the black shirt. Picture. I love that picture. <laughs> credit to my wife she's she's the one who set that one up and she's the photographer so. she did a great job <laughs> yes, she did. yes the uh, green tree looks great the guy in the picture not so much uh, <laughs> uh, you can also find me on Instagram snakes and bakes yeah he does a lot of weed smokes a lot of weed whatever <laughs> yeah. dude is always high <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Think of that. That's a great. That's a great business. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Move to Colorado and open up. That's a... Not what I was expecting, Travis. Not what I was. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wrong bakes. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Travis yeah, gonna get drug great. tested at work tomorrow. It's all. Oh my god. Uh, I, I I probably will be, but that's okay because <laughs> I always pass. Yeah, it's part was... of the court ordered mandate. Don't worry. <laughs> that's, that's just conditions of my job. <laughs> um, if anybody wants to reach out to us, we are the Reptile Gumbo Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget, save 15% on VivTech. Use code Gumbo22. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. We're taking ne- next week's Christmas. We're not going to be on here for Christmas. So we'll be back in two weeks. I actually do have a guest lined up for that one. Oops, so whoop. we can. Breathe a little bit. Uh, those of you that have podcasts, that have guests, have you found that to be the hardest thing to do is find people that want to come on and talk? No. My problem? No. My problem, it's, it's not a huge problem, it's not a huge <laughs> it's problem here. It's you, James. No, it's at shows. <laughs> it's at shows. I find reptile people are like, because reptile people are not people people in general. Yeah. And they're like, I don't, I'm afraid to talk. I'm like, it's just talking. Like, it's, I'm not asking you to do anything. There's not going to be people there like laughing. No tricks. It's just talking. And then once they're on, they're like, oh, this wasn't that bad. I was like, it was literally talking. I don't know why you thought it was bad. It's I've, I've had two people. I think the key is. They know. Everybody else has been yes. I think, yeah, for me, it's the, if you if you just do it really infrequently, then it's a lot easier to find guests. <laughs> 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 you're asking fewer when people. You're almost at 200, James. That is true. I've almost at 200. That is way too many people. Have, that's why I've had Travis on like 70 times. Uh, and then people tell me to quit having Travis. Oh, it's just me that says to quit having Travis on. Whatever. You just, uh, you just don't like that know, I make you read, James. You know reading is not favorite. fun, and if you could turn everything into a small YouTube video, then it will hurt good. you to read. Or a meme. A meme. A meme, a meme is even better. Meme. Just everything can just be I'm a meme. Stop letting you buy books when we go places. I've got a you whole bookshelf. Look, look at all these books I bought. I know. This one's on Gila You're not monsters. actually going to read them. Why am I spending I'm money on stuff? This one's on poisonous snakes of Texas. 
Which Gila monster one did you get? Yeah, what Gila? Facts and Folklore of America's Aztec Lizard by David E. Brown and Neil B. Carmony. Huh. It's from like all. I tend to go to all of his half stuff price is books. At least nineteen fifty or older. No, this one's not. Got to be an older one. It, oh, it's an older one. It was uh, nineteen ninety one. Was the last oh. time this was. Okay, well, maybe not nineteen fifty. Bit dramatic. Yeah. Bit dramatic. I just, okay. I just like going to half price books and buying like the the old books of or old reptile books. I'm starting to get antsy. The steroids are kicking in again. Uh, that's right, Katie. The steroids. I forgot to. Sorry, she's training for the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if anybody wants to reach out to us, we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you all for coming on. Wait around for a second. Goodbye, everybody else that was watching. Uh, good night.